One shall stand, one shall fall. Why throw away your life so recklessly? That's a question you should ask yourself, Megatron. Hello and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And nerd alert, today's episode is 1986's The Transformers, The, the movie. movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We did it. <laughs> We sure did. <laughs> we watched it and we had a great conversation with one of our very, very good friends, Paul, about it. And a lot of that conversation is about uh, the the clip you just heard, which in mostly all of the ways is a prelude <laughs> to a tragedy. One of the most horrific things that I witnessed in my childhood, the death of Optimus Prime. Which you spoiled for me in the last episode. I legendarily famously <laughs> yes I, I did do that uh i mean you hear you hear uh cup telling hot rod to lay off and you're like as you're watching you're like no it's he's he's not and he's gonna be the reason he dies and that all played out it uh it wasn't as i would say traumatic for me though we do get into it with paul like our various reasons why it was kind of a bummer that Optimus Prime <laughs> yeah. was taken out so soon. I Yeah, I think that's how most kids felt in the 80s when that happened was like, bummer. Yeah, so, I mean, this is not hyperbole. Paul is like a legit Transformers he's, fan, like mega a, fan. Yeah, he's he's an actual expert yeah. on the subject matter. Absolutely. Yeah. And we had such an amazing conversation with him. And I want to get to that because we also cover quite a bit of ground with him. Yes. So so let's jump in. Let's do it. Um. So you mentioned it already. So this movie came out in 86. And, you know, we kind of briefly touch on this with Paul. So this is really unlike any other film that we've covered uh, in large part because it's our first and so far only animated film. Yeah. Um. I don't think we have anything on deck uh, that's going to be like this for a while but who knows there are a few others i mean um i could see possibly secret of nim okay i mean dark crystal isn't necessarily animated but it's still horrifying and 80s exactly it's very much (laughs) in line um so okay so we will start with a writer gentleman by the name of ron friedman and i think what is hilarious to me is that like with zero prompt paul kind of brought up Every single person that was like involved in this movie, like he just knows them. He, he just knows them. So like I'm, we're really excited for you guys to listen to him talk about this movie. Um, so Mr. Freeman, he has 84 writing credits, which is kind of a lot for a writer. Yeah, that's like, pretty good. That's pretty good. And I, what I tried to do, um, more so I guess with the performers in this film, but I was like trying to find the connections between the the people who were connected with this film and then like other types of animation or at least try to see like maybe where they got into that in their careers if it became something more long-standing than just like a one-off movie yeah um so with friedman he first of all crazy background in classic tv like he basically worked on like every show that probably our parents grew up with um so among some of his credits the danny k show gilligan's island Mm. bewitched I Dream of Jeannie, The Partridge Family, The Odd Couple, Love American Style, Chico and the Man, Starsky and Hutch, Fantasy Island. He wrote an so, episode of Barney Miller, too. 
Yeah, I, yeah, and I only pick the one because he has so many credits. A lot of those I, one-offs, yeah. Yes, I pick the ones that he maybe had like more than just a couple episodes that he wrote for. I just wanted to shout out to Barney Miller since it's a show that I had no interest in as a as a kid, right? And I have no interest in it now. Oh, <laughs> shout out! <laughs> it's a very backhanded shout out. But so then we kind of fast forward to. Um, later in his career, and it seems like that's when he kind of made a little bit of a pivot into animation writing. Because in addition to this movie, so he wrote for uh, G.I. Joe, a real American hero. It's pretty that good. That was, okay, yeah, thank you. that was spot on. <laughs> so he wrote that. Um, he wrote on G.I. Joe, The Revenge of Cobra. Mm-hmm. Also, Iron Man, not... Not the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man, uh, earlier incarnation of it, Um, and Fantastic Four, the animated series. So he definitely wasn't a one-off, but it's just a really, to me, interesting trajectory of a career to go from kind of these like classic live-action shows into animation. I think probably they could put a credit for as co-writer for all of the G.I. Joe and Transformers of Hasbro. Excellent point. Yeah, I'm sure his hands he, were tied. I'm sure <laughs> he I'm sure had a lot of people in his ear telling him he had to write a certain way. Yep. Yeah. That, Kill all these ones off. We're selling these new ones. That should definitely. Yeah, that was that was a great point to make. OK, so moving on to the director, gentleman by the name of Nelson Shin. So this guy like, look, full disclaimer, this isn't my world. Um, I'm, I'm really, really, really green when it comes to knowing all the like players who have been part of this role, but it seems from all accounts that Would that be the uh, world of eighties animated programming based on toys. Yes. It's, a, it's kind of, it's kind of a specific. Yeah, world. <laughs> <laughs> that would be it. But it seems like, um, Mr. Shin is like pretty big deal. And like, he wasn't just like the director of this movie, um, like per his IMDb, uh, he is the founder, because he's still with us, going strong. Um, the founder and president of Acom Production Company. In okay. the, so this is way back in the 70s. And then he like worked as an animator at a place called the DePatty Freeling Studio. Okay. So he he seems like he's like a well-known gentleman in this world. Um, and then what I found interesting, and it, I think it kind of shows like where his uh, niche is with some of his credits. Um, and as you'll see, when we go through kind of some of the other people involved with this film, there's a fair amount of crossover. It seems like kind of a small world in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Um, so I just had to put this one down because it was a fun title. Baggy Pants and the Nitwits. That is a fun title. Right? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. What's new, Mr. Magoo? Mm. The Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. The Pink Panther Show. Mm-hmm. Dr. Snuggles. Yeah, I was hoping you'd get that. I'm yeah. not familiar with Dr. Snuggles, but that title. I'd watch something called Dr. Snuggles. <laughs> um, Spider-Man. I like this one, too. Well, Me- Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Oh, no. Like, Did you yeah, both? There's, there's both. Okay. Yeah, okay. And, and I had to... And actually, and like that's one series actually in particular that I think comes up a couple times with some of these people. And I had to just like, so that this actually wouldn't be a six hour podcast, like kind of cut down. We're cutting on, it down to five. Cut it down to five. So we have Meatballs and Spaghetti, which I thought was fun. He also worked on G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Mm. So we there's a, another crossover 
right off the bat. The Incredible Hulk, you already mentioned, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. He worked on Dungeons and Dragons. Thought we'd give that a shout out. Like the... The... I'm guessing it's a show. Okay. Like, it wasn't my show, but um, it's a show. And people, you know, I know D&D is huge for a lot of people. And then this is one thing that does come up quite a few times, and I think it's hilarious. The Simpsons. Yeah. Seems like half the people we're going to be talking about had some kind of connection to The Simpsons. That's which, inter- Wow. Considering that show's been on for over 30 years. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So we actually have talked about this gentleman. We talked about him kind of at length with Paul, but um, give a once-over for Mr. Vince DiCola, who did the music on this movie. Look, you take Vince DiCola, you put him in a room with every synthesizer ever created, and this is what you get, and it's a masterpiece. I'm nodding my head. Um, Masterpieces is one choice you could make. It's a masterpiece of synthesized music. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, I mentioned, so Mr. DeCola has like kind of an interesting relationship, it seems, with the Stallone family. Yeah, it does. It does seem that way. So one of his earliest credits is he was a composer for a video called Frank Stallone, <laughs> Far From Over, which yeah. it's like, oh, did you have to? If you got to say you're far from over. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to throw shade and be snarky, but I think you know where I'm going with that. If you have to say it. it well, It's yeah. like in Game of Thrones where... Uh, Tywin, right? No and he's true like, king yes, has, to- <laughs> has to say he's the king. No true Stallone must announce that he is a Stallone. <laughs> and then uh, going bouncing over to the other Stallone, he was the composer for Rocky Four. Yeah, and you can definitely pick up on that. Some mm-hmm. of the themes for Drago are reflected in the themes that he has created for Unicron. Yeah, yep. Uh, another very very 80s movie staying alive yeah he did the soundtrack and so i just want to differentiate because um the way they kind of break down credits there's like composing credits and then there's soundtrack credits so like that technically was a soundtrack credit yeah as were um credits for the tv shows so more recently glee and glow nice but we talk about with paul that it's really interesting because glow r.i.p too soon yeah uh was set in the 80s so it kind of makes a lot of sense that he, he would have worked on that to work on shows beginning with gl yes he does he sure does he also worked on american horror story so it seems like maybe he has a little bit of a relationship with ryan murphy hmm. um and then a very recent credit is stallone colon frank that is yeah interesting Stallone, colon, Frank, comma, that That is. is. (laughs) I I mean, so I wonder if we're going to get like a full Frank Stallone trilogy. That would be great. I don't know. We need to to catch up on that. Where it's headed. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Cinematography, which, gosh, we could have a whole conversation about what that entails for an animated feature because it's certainly... Not quite the same. A whole different monster um, than live action. But it uh, was done by a gentleman named uh, Masatoshi Fukai. I hope I am pronouncing the last name correctly. Mm. Um, Not a ton of, like, cinematography credits. A couple of them, Kenya Boy and Dragon Ball Z, Mm -hmm. Coolest Revenge. But a lot of, like, camera operator work. And I feel like that does actually kind of tie in because... 
given I'm guessing they were doing probably old school animation. Um, yeah, I think it was. I mean, it. I don't know if there was any like CG involved, but even if there was, it's it's not the same. Primarily, it would probably be. Yeah, old it, it's it's yeah, it's not like what we see today. Like right. what we think of like CG, which is just like 100% computer animated mm-hmm. stuff. I don't think that's what this. I mean, the the Transformers movie had more of like almost an anime look. Yeah, the, the character models weren't as sharp as what you might see in in like other anime from that era possibly but it definitely had like a, a a different look from just like the the tv show yeah and so it what's interesting is that so he didn't necessarily make his career strictly on cinematography work more camera operating work and there's kind of a similar circumstance with the editor of this film. And we do kind of go into it with Paul a little bit. Uh, another gentleman, David Hankins. Hankins? I'm going to go with Hankins. Hankins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he is credited, credited as the editor of this film. And he does have a couple others. Uh, G.I. Joe the movie. So mm-hmm. he has that under his belt. Something called The Red Bomb, which was actually Doc. So I think very different. Is than- it The Red Bomb? colon frank stallone (laughs) that is no (laughs) damn but what is really interesting about him is that the great bulk of his career has been in sound Hmm. and sound editing and sound editing and picture editing are two very different disciplines yeah so i just found that kind of fascinating that that was the case um, and so among those credits, so he has a sound effects editor credit for G.I. Joe, like mm-hmm. the, the TV show. Muppet Babies. Oh, nice. Yeah, right. Uh, the Transformers TV okay. show. Defenders of the Earth. Okay. And then he kind of moves over into just sound editor for live action, the the TV show version of Beauty and the Beast. Remember with Linda Hamilton? Oh, and uh, Ron Perlman? Yeah, I think he did play that. I never watched it. But um, so then he has kind of the opposite trajectory of the writer of the film because he kind of seemed to have his first earlier career in animation and then he moved over into live action interesting so because some of his other credits um law and order i don't know if you're familiar with this i did not want watch these but like the red shoe diaries it oh, was like no, I'm not. soft core okay yeah um <laughs> so that's all i'm gonna say and he actually also worked on one of my favorite movies miss congeniality i saw that yeah, yeah. i'm so glad that you brought that up yeah <laughs> so like really interesting careers of the people we've covered so far yeah um because we are going to go into very quickly um go into all the different people who contributed their like voice acting skills to this film i thought it was prudent i don't know if that's the word but we should bring up the casting the person who is responsible for casting yeah for sure so finally, we got a chick in there, Carol Dudley. And she knocked it out of the park. Knocked it out of the Holy park. Holy shit. <laughs> she did a great job. And another really kind of interesting career is that, like, this did kind of seem like a one-off for her. She's, like, kind of the one person who didn't really do a ton of animation work. Hmm. She really did have, like, not only did she have her bread and butter in live action, but, like, Two shows in particular, two two 
franchises, I'll say. So she did casting for Moonlighting. That's not the one I was thinking of. But she has a slew of credits for, like, literally every Perry Mason TV movie. Wow. Okay. And Matlock. So she, this woman cornered the market on TV lawyers. And, like, if you go nice. through her IMDb, Perry Mason, Perry Mason, like, it's, it's hilarious. So... I guess she she must have been really good at her job because they kept asking her back for every single one of those TV shows. So that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the cast, the casting for this movie is inspired. It is. And so I think that that's really cool because this is kind of like well outside her wheelhouse from what what you can see from her um, listing. But OK, so let's get into all the voice actors. So almost, I think, without exception, all of the people that like, OK, first of all, huge cast of voice actors. I can't possibly cover all of them. It's stacked. It's stacked. And so I picked the ones that, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be insulting to the people who are way more familiar with this movie, but just like the names that stood out to me that I knew outside of this film. Like I know them from other projects and that yeah. sort of thing. So um, starting with actually somebody we've already talked about, mm-hmm. oddly enough, Scatman Crothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. From The Shining. Yeah. Yep. And normally we would refer people back to previous episodes. But what I did here is for all the people that I'm going to be bringing up, even though they're kind of just like, quote, regular actors and have like live action credits to the name, I try to focus on their voice acting credits. Okay. So... That might have come up a couple times with uh, Mr. Crothers because I don't know if I was had it on my brain that we were going to be covering this movie. So I might have just inadvertently mentioned some of his voice acting gigs. But I tried this time to like really pare it down to those in particular. Got it. So um, again, we have uh, not – what was the – let's see. What was the other Magoo that I had already more, mentioned? We got more Magoos? Yeah, we got more Magoos. So like Nelson Shin worked on What's New, Mr. Magoo. Uh-huh. Uh, Scatman worked on The Famous Adventures of Mr. Magoo. The Famous Adventures of... Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I do recall this one in particular that I had given him a shout out for the Aristocats. Nice. So I do remember that. But then among some of his others, um, all animation, the new Scooby-Doo movies. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. I do vaguely remember this cartoon and i remember hating it captain oh. caveman yeah i didn't and really the teen like... angels i yeah. don't know the teenagers but like i kind of remember captain caveman and he was just like so spastic to me yeah he would just kind of uh he would just freak out that captain was his... caveman like it was something like that yeah you're really bringing it thank you thank you nice maybe i'll be a voice actor yeah. um something called trollkins yeah i'm not familiar with i don't that. know that um, but then he worked because he also he was a character of jazz in the movie. But then he also played jazz in the TV series for the Transformers. Yes. And then he was on something called Paw Paws. I'm Paw guessing Paws. it's something with doggies. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, OK, so moving on to and this just like tickles my phony bone for some reason. Um, I mean, he is legitimately a really funny guy, Eric Idle. But I think. Anybody who knows that name immediately goes to Monty Python. Yes, definitely. Like, immediately. And so I think that's, like, where the bulk of his fame comes from, his association with all those different movies. But he's in this movie. He is Rekgar. Yes. And I was really surprised 
actually with him and kind of everybody else I'm about to list off, all the different voice acting he did. I had no clue that he had so many. Um, he has one of those uncredited credits. Uh, those are my favorite. Yeah, and this doesn't sound like a cartoon, but it was like a voice credit. How to get ahead in advertising? I'm like, oh. is that like a uh, industrial, like something that they just like show? Yeah, show in like corporate. Um, he, among some of his other credits, One Foot in the Grave mm-hmm. sounds kind of dark. Mm-hmm. Discworld and Discworld Two: Mortality Bites. Interesting. Fun title. Yeah. <laughs> and then a little bit more recently, Pinky in the Brain. Oh, man. That show is so good. Quest for Camelot. Okay. The 1998 version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Hmm. Uh, Related title to something you just brought up a Mm -hmm. couple minutes ago. The Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue. I've never heard of or seen Secret of Nim 2. I've heard of it. Haven't Mm. seen it, but I've heard of it. And then he voiced on the TV series Hercules. He also had a part in South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Wow. As well as 102 Dalmatians and da, 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 The Simpsons. Don't forget Shrek the Third. I mean, oh, sorry. It's no Shrek or even the Shrek sequel, but it's, a, it's still there. Well, you're kind of making my point. Like, he's done so much voice work that, like, I had to kind of pick and choose i do love that it comes back to the simpsons though right yeah Yeah. yep yep okay so this one kind of like blew my mind to be quite honest casey Kasem. yeah so yeah i I, the only thing i want to bring up with his character is that it's amazing the context they put him in right elaborate you you hear him towards the beginning of the movie when they're in a shuttle getting ready to take off and uh, I think it was Optimus asked for a countdown. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked for a countdown. He gives a countdown. He's Casey Kasem. He does countdowns. Wow. Right? Very meta. Yeah. Very. Well, actually, that kind of goes, yeah, it goes to the point I was going to make is that I only grew up really knowing Casey Kasem as a radio guy. Yeah. Very distinctive voice, for sure. Like, you know him as soon as you hear him. But I only kind of knew him as the guy who did, like, I don't know, top 40 countdowns. I feel like I also know him from Scooby-Doo, maybe? Well, there you go. So, like, when I was looking at his IMDb, I was like, this is insane. Like, it is overwhelming, the number of credits he has. And a lot of it is Scooby. A lo- <laughs> yeah. Like, probably, I, I didn't do the math, but, like, it seems like half is Scooby. Yeah. Scooby iterations. And, but, like, I was like, holy cow, this guy had, like, a whole other career that I just was never aware of. Um, so he plays Cliff Jumper mm-hmm. in the movie, but among some of his credits, also in the famous adventures of Mr. Magoo. Man, this Mr. Magoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh the Batman Superman Hour, Hot Wheels, Catanooga Cats. What a I just want to go back to how lame of a title is that? The Batman Superman Hour. Oh, totally. It's it like, sounds like so boring. Political news or something. Yeah. It's like you couldn't have come up with anything more creative than mm. that. Um, to your point just a minute ago, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? It's one of his credits. Josie and the Pussycats. The Funky Phantom. Did you mention who he was in all of those, Scooby? Doesn't he play himself? He's Shaggy. No in way. a lot of them. Yeah. 
He's shaggy. I thought I saw, like, I, I had it, like, you know, like, I could spend literal days going through everybody's credits, but I feel like I saw some of the credits where he was just himself. Yeah, there's there's a lot. I okay. Mean, including Saved by the Bell, where he played himself. Crazy. <laughs> um, And so, let's see. Oh, Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space. Mm. The new Scooby-Doo movies. Mm. The all-new Super Friends Hour. Another boring title. Big in hours. Yeah. yeah big in hours. I, I always appreciate when they tell me what I'm getting into, though. So I know it's about an hour It's going to be like an hour. Yeah. Yogi's Space Race. Again, Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels. Yeah. And then the Transformers TV series. Nice. So he was in that as well. Okay. Moving on to what I felt was like the biggest, like, interesting bit of casting in this movie that's saying something because there's a lot of interesting casting right but so judd nelson okay who plays hot rod slash rodimus prime you are very yeah you're very interested in this particular casting it's yes i am because look my straight up association with this guy is like john bender the breakfast club part of the brat pack you know like that is how i know him as a child like that that was my association with him yeah so i never knew until literally a couple days ago when i started doing my research on this that he was part of this movie and i just am curious because as we talk about with paul he did this at the height of his fame and i'm just like i'd love to sit down with him and be like so what uh what made you pull the trigger on this gig and want to be a part of it like maybe he maybe he loved transformers i don't know can we make that happen probably Uh, not (laughs) uh, probably not but i will see what i can do um so and what's here's what's more interesting to me so like among his credits so he does have other voice acting credits um but uh most of them are far ahead in his acting career so like he did this one in the 80s really didn't touch it again and then he kind of came back to voice acting later on so among some of his credits, he has an uncredit credit mm. for Family Guy where he plays a character called John Bender. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then he revisits his character of like Rodimus Prime in Transformers Animated. I love how much you hate that character that even when you say <laughs> the character's name, there's like this disdain. <laughs> um, so for that, Transformers, Titans Return, and Transformers, Power of the Primes. I'm not as familiar with all these other series. Fortunately, we do go into some of the other Transformers mm-hmm. lore, I mm-hmm. guess, and mythology mm-hmm. with Paul. But yeah, I, the, like I'm aware of the existence of the Beast Wars series, but I didn't watch it. And okay. I, don't, I don't know what... I did honestly don't know if I even knew that Optimus came back later mm. in like other series because of the backlash. But I'm glad he did. What I find interesting about this part of his career is that your voice changes as you get older. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, if he, because is he still supposed to play, like, a relatively young Transformer? I don't know. But it's interesting that he's come back to this, you know, 30-ish years later. And... I'm just wondering how his well, voice sounds, if it's like sounds the same or. And just the, the actual credits are, are piquing my interest because it's Transformers Power of the Primes and it says Unicron slash 
Rodimus Cron slash Rodimus Unicronus? What is happening? He's, uh, wow. It's like transformation. And then a couple of his other um, voice acting credits, Phineas and Ferb. Okay. And then Ben 10 Omniverse. I do not know what that is at all. No. So, okay. Moving on to a much beloved figure for an entirely different franchise, Leonard Nimoy. Oh, yeah. So people love him as Spock from Star Trek. But, uh, yeah, he had a fair amount of voice acting uh, credits to his name as well. So in this movie, he was Galvatron. Who is kind of like the reincarnated version of Megatron. Okay. Right? I, oh, you're, you're asking me? Sure. So he's, he's left <laughs> to drift in space and encounters Unicron, who offers him like, hey, I'll give you an upgrade, but you got to do whatever I say. Got it. And okay, so that's how that came about. Yeah. Okay. Um, so among some of his, this is, I thought, kind of interesting. So he was in Star Trek, the animated series. Hmm. So kind of interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Um, something called the Halloween tree. Mm. Don't know it. Mm-mm. Uh, the page master. The Simpsons. Of course. Yeah. 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 Duckman colon private dick slash family man. Is that? different from was that like the full name of Duckman? i remember there being an animated series called Duckman, but i didn't oh, know I that was the whole series that's title. what i wrote down that's yeah. what was on imdb okay invasion america hmm. rashi a light after the dark ages futurama nice oh yeah it's his head it's like yes yeah it's always i for think those that's even the credit yeah <laughs> yep and then transformers dark side of the moon where he plays sentinel prime yeah and i think i think dark of the moon was that the second transformers movie or the third maybe of the michael bay franchise i can't remember i do not know i think it's the second one and i think i remember that because i think i was actually in chicago at the time and Hmm. i just decided to see that because i had like an evening where i'm like i'll just go see this movie before i see my family the next day so i saw that you were in my city before we ever knew each other and as i was writing down the escalator after the movie where i thought i fucking hated this movie (laughs) there were just people in front of me talking about like everything that was wrong in the movie about like yeah, it, it was it was a wild experience. It like these guys were nerding out in a way that where I, I had never experienced that before and they hated it too. But my guess is that however badly they were nerding out and hating on it, it can't even it. compare yeah, and but can't even compare to like more recent fandoms and No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to Mr. Robert Stack, who played Ultra Magnus. Yeah. In this movie. He's that other truck looking dude. Yeah. Great voice. Great voice. Amazing voice. Amazing voice. And actually, as Paul mentions in our conversation with him, this was his very first foray into voice acting. Apparently, he was kind of nervous about it. He kept Knocked asking, it out of the park. Uh, yeah, he kept asking, like, am I doing this right? Aww. Did I do this right? And they were like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're real, you're actually fine. really good at this. So, yeah. You're fine, Bob. Okay. Uh, but then he must have, you know, liked it enough because he did a couple other uh, gigs where he also did voice acting. One of which mm-hmm. was Beavis and Butthead Do America. Man, that's crazy. Isn't that nuts? <laughs> 
Uh, he also was on the TV series Hercules. He was also on Hercules Zero to Hero. The, is this animated or is this the one animated. with... Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, something called the Angry Beavers. I, don't, I just thought it was funny. Yeah, so it sounds amazing. It. This one I thought was funny too. But Ugly Martians. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then he has an uncredited credit for King of the Hill. So a lot of crossovers. Yeah. Um, as what a Mike judge see. between yes. King of the Hill and Beavis and Butthead. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so last person and probably uh, completely appropriate to end with him. Oh, can I bring up one more then? Yeah, of course. Um, it was the guy who played Cup. Okay. And uh, I, I can't, I can't remember his name now. Who who was who played Cup? Well, Lionel, I guess we could Lionel Stander. Okay. Played Cup and. He he had been acting for so long that he actually was in silent movies. Wow. Before this. That's how long his acting career dates back to. And he one of the funny stories about him is that he was so used to having someone to act off of that they have all of the actors, you know, in the room to do the recording. And he starts reading his lines and he would like look over at the at, you know, somebody else. And he kept on getting like hit, like, you're off mic, I can't hear you. So one of the other actors who could like read ahead and realize that he didn't have anything to say for a while, he just stood in front of him so that he had somebody to like Aww. make eye contact with and, and look at. So I thought that was kind of a, a fun, wholesome story. It was very wholesome. And, uh, you know, my apologies because I didn't recognize him by name, but looking at his picture, I, I totally remember him. Uh, I like, did it, like, watch the show? But I think I remember, like, seeing on TV, Heart to Heart. Yeah. He had that, like, scratchy kind of gravelly voice. Yes. Yeah. So, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, his very... Well, he didn't quite work in silence. At least his very first... Um, then I've been lied to. His very first credit is from 1931. And we already had talkies at that point. But he wasn't in them. <laughs> sure. I mean... I f okay, well, we, we will put a pin in that conversation because I'm not going to get into the whole thing about sound <laughs> films. But uh, but in any case, okay, so moving on to Mr. Orson Welles, who played Unicron. Mm -hmm. He played a, a big toy that, that beat up smaller toys. <laughs> as he would have said. Yes, Yeah. as he did say. As he did say. So, I mean, illustrious early career for sure uh i mean he was pretty much called a genius yeah a filmmaking genius when he first came on the scene um and most people do know him i would say hands down from citizen kane yeah which he kind of like that was his baby like he started it he directed it pretty like the whole deal but as I have done with all these other actors, I tried to focus on his credits where he did voice acting. Okay. And boy, did he have a voice. He had such a distinct voice. So yeah. he he has a lot of voice acting credits. And what I thought was fascinating is that, so he has in total 130 credits on IMDb. Okay. And I started noticing kind of a pattern with some of them. And so I did a count. 37 of those 130 credits, he is listed as narrator. 
That makes sense with that voice. Right. And now narrator could be something where he plays a character that is is just referred to as the narrator where he's actually in the film. Yeah. Or it could just strictly be voiceover. So I didn't really go so into the weeds as to parse that out. But I was like, he must hold the record for the number of like times he's played a character called just narrator. Anyway, so some of his voiceover work credits... Um, the Magnificent Ambersons. He's actually, I thought this was interesting. He has an uncredited credit. We have a lot of those <laughs> in this episode. Yeah. Uh, for Duel in the Sun. Okay. So is that. The Little World of Don Camilo. Another uncredited credit for the Vikings. Hmm. South Seas Adventure. Another uncredited credit for King of Kings. Some call it Greed. The Double MacGuffin. The Double MacGuffin. The Double MacGuffin. Holy shit. Shogun, History of the World Part 1, and then completely, like, outside of all those, Magnum P.I. He he was in it, though, right? Or was he... As... Oh, he was, again, like, the voice yes, of Robin Masters. Yes. Okay. So I did try to stay true to just voice acting credits. Yeah, and that was Although, in, like, the 80s, so... What wow. is different, I think, from his voice acting credits... Um, as compared to literally everybody else that we've talked about, is that his are more in the line of, like, voiceover and, and narrator credits, where, like, they were still live-action films. They're not animated. Yeah. But you don't see him. You just hear him. Yeah. Um, so that is a little different. Okay. So moving on to synopsis. Now, I'm going to completely throw this at in like this is all you Whoa. for you telling me if you feel like this is a good hold on let me let me get ready then okay okay i'm just like i know i'm, I'm just like an, a newbie so like i don't know if i have like the authority to say whether it's good or not i, I think you do we watched it we both watched it yeah sure okay Lay it on me. so here we go the autobots must stop a colossal planet consuming robot who goes after the autobot matrix of leadership at the same time they must defend themselves against an all-out attack from the Decepticons. Yeah, I mean, that that stuff happens. Although, I mean, look, what I'm going to say is probably going to get fact-checked by Paul. He may, he may like, dial back in. But I'm going to say <laughs> that it seemed like... So the Autobots were about to stage a campaign to try to get control back of their home planet Cybertron. And in doing so, they, they lost that battle. Optimus dies. The This Autobot matrix of leadership is released and passed on. And at that moment, I think that's when Unicron became aware of its existence or, or like he pinged him or whatever. So the order is a little bit like suspect in that synopsis. But yeah, that works. Okay, it checks out. Yeah, that checks out. Okay. Um. I mean, you and Paul both go into detail about, like, the, what what appeared to be very strong, possibly still traumatic memories for the both of you <laughs> of seeing this movie for the first time. I felt trauma last night watching it again. I only saw it for the first time last night, so no trauma here. <laughs> but um, but in any case, so we'll we'll leave that to our conversation with Paul. I mean, another thing that's interesting about this, and I'm I was trying to think like, do do animated movies do this? I think I think 
more recent ones do, but I don't think this really has a true montage. There are lots of sections of the movie that are played with music, which is usually an indicator of a montage. The whole movie is kind of a montage. Well, it, mo- it moves so quickly. It does. Like, there, like I said with Paul, like it burns through so much plot. Um, but I don't know if there's like really a true montage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's... They, they kind of go Everything over some things. Everything seems to kind of happen in real time. Yeah, when they're when they're split up and on those other planets with like mm-hmm. the Sharkticons and and whatnot in the junk, the junk planet, mm-hmm. planet of junk. Mm-hmm. There might be a little bit, but not not sure. really. I'm I won't even claim to really have an authoritative take on that because there's it was, so much. Well, yeah, it was kind of a lot for a first watch and a cold watch. There <laughs> is like even when there are songs that would in many ways denote this is you're about to see a, a, a montage. Yeah. Instead, it's like no, there's just going to be they're just this, fighting like, or dancing or they only do that once. Really, to be <laughs> fair, I, I still don't fully understand why they like they just suffered kind of these crushing defeats. And they it was a real it was like a weird like expression of grief. You yeah. know, sometimes people just do really wacky stuff when they're yeah. grieving. Maybe a that's what that was about. Dancing to, to yeah. Weird Al. So that was fun. So wait, what were they dancing to him? To Weird Al? Well that Dare to Be Stupid song is Weird Al. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um I mean a couple of things that I just wanted to bring up uh before we move into our conversation. So it does come up with Paul, but we kind of glance over it a little bit. I think it's really funny this is, that this movie is supposed to be set in 2005. Yeah. The future. The future. <laughs> Although, uh, like, it's 2005, but they're, like, alien robot sentient beings, so they don't really show much on planet Earth. No, they don't. To make you think, like, well, I, I don't know. Like, the, we only see a couple of humans around other, like, super advanced robots, mm-hmm. so whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. And then uh, it was both the last, although, you know, I was kind of like fact-checking that and it seemed like other credits came after, but I don't know, maybe there's something weird with the way that different projects were released. But according to IMDb, this was the last film for both Orson Welles and Scatman Crothers. Yeah. So, okay. I think uh, we we have definitely been teasing this amazing conversation so how about we just get into it let's do it and so we are absolutely thrilled to have with us today one of our very lovely wonderful great friends and also senior creative editor for on-air promotions at crown media family networks and transformers aficionado paul Najmabadi. Paul, thanks for being with us today. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here to talk about my favorite thing ever, Transformers. I mean, I like <laughs> I like my wife and my kids too. Yes, but then Transformers. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about them with you guys today. I mean, we're really stoked because we, look, you're one of our like oldest and dearest friends and yeah. we know how much you love this world of Transformers. And so we're super stoked. And then also this is fun for us because this is a totally different kind of film than what yeah. we've, I mean, first it animated is. film. Yeah, it so. is. I mean, it is in some ways the most 80s film of the <laughs> 80s films we've covered in 80s movie montage. Yeah, it's, it's really eighties. It's got really it's got some really. It's, <laughs> I, I believe I believe uh, there's the. I was reading on some website like somebody was describing the soundtrack as the most eighties thing 
that has ever come out of the 80s because it is painfully 80s. <laughs> but, that's a really it, appropriate way of uh, describing it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm saying this to somebody who loves it. So <laughs> I know. the composer in describing how he scored the movie said that they got a room and they put literally every synthesizer every that, had, synthesizer. that that existed at that time. Yeah. And, and you could and you could tell when you watched the movie too because because apparently he was like for for some of the scenes like the battle scenes he was just running around the room like hitting different synthesizers <laughs> and like you know like oh this over here and like you hear those scenes and it's like oh yeah well uh, he got that synthesizer over there and like oh this guy happened to walk in so that synthesizer is going like it's crazy but and this it. is exactly why this is going to be such a fun episode because <laughs> i mean look every single episode that we have the person our special guest has a love for the film that we're talking about and usually is like quite knowledgeable about different aspects of the film but i feel like you're gonna probably school us hard on <laughs> most aspects of this film yeah so um let's jump in let's go let's go, let's go. Where, where do you want to start okay so i'm gonna <clears throat> kind of use my typical question that i start off with and i'm really curious what your answer is going to be to this so the first question is what was your first experience with this film, if you can remember, and oh, you know, can. were you a child? <laughs> yes, I, I'm going to just like zip it so that you can okay. you can jump in. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally remember. Um, I specifically remember going to see this movie uh, when it was out in the theaters in, in '86. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I would have been ten years old at the time. And, um, you know, like, like every boy of my era, like was kind of into transformers. Even if you weren't really into transformers, you were into transformers. You had watched the show, you were into it. And, um, I, you know, I was kind of into the transforming robots thing. I was into it. And then I went to see this movie and like my mind was blown by every aspect of it, you know? Um, and it, I, I feel like I walked out of there with, I think a lot of boys my age, kind of walked out of there with the same feeling of like, you just grew up a little bit watching that movie, (laughs) you know, in a way that you didn't expect to like, you just, I mean, I hope I'm not spoiling anything for anybody, but you know, you just watched, you just watched one of your heroes die (laughs) and a lot of your heroes die. And all of a sudden it was like, Oh, I, I'm not the same person I was when I walked into that movie, you know? (laughs) Well, that is so fascinating because, okay. So first of all, Derek did spoil, that for me oh, yeah. Good job, prior yeah. to watching this. And Optimus I'm Prime pretty, was probably the only character I was familiar with. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that um I'm pretty sure that this had come up uh long before I officially spoiled it for you. The fact that I spoiled it on the podcast though, that was uh that was different. That was fun. Uh but I had sure, spoiled it. I had actually sure. I think what I'm saying is that was at least the second time I've spoiled that for you. Agree to disagree. But in any case, um <laughs> What you said really hits home because so we, you know, and you had mentioned that you had done the same. We all watched the movie prior to recording this. Yeah. And we saw like a little snippet of the people who worked on the film mm-hmm. just talking about the reaction to it. Yeah. And the thing that I found hilarious is that kind of across the board, they're all like, yeah, we just didn't realize that all these kids would be upset at Optimus Prime dying. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, I, how would you not know that? I, I think it's interesting that you're probably like, so we we have a view of like what fandom is now, 
right? Like yeah. Phantom is big, you know, people are into Buffy or, you know, Star Trek or, you know, but, but it's a lot more mainstream now. And I think you were seeing that start in the eighties. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just, and I think like with something like Transformers, which, you know, it, I remember me specifically, like you had latched on to these heroes uh, in a way that like, I feel like previous generations may have, you know, other generations had their flash Gordons and their, their, mm-hmm. you know, the shadows or whatever, but we had Luke Skywalker, you know, we had, um, we had those heroes that like, we really, really got into and really connected with and, and Optimus Prime was one of those, you know, and I, I, I've heard it described and, and I feel like it's a lot like this too, probably how the boomers felt um, in a way uh, when Bambi's mom was killed. Mm. you know like that was a, a you know i've even heard that that was the reason for a lot of the um you know the the uh the the hippie movements in the 60s was because of you know seeing this like it really affected them and like i feel like for my generation there was that moment too in a movie where you didn't expect to feel the way you did you know well you you know you bring up some of the other movies the star wars franchise where even though you know it was an adventure and kind of exciting and luke was in danger you kind of always knew that it was going to work out. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't expect like Luke got his hand cut off spoilers. And <laughs> that's, what? you know, one of the worst <laughs> things that, that kind of happened to him in that original trilogy. So yeah. at this, at the point that the transformers, the movie, I hate that title, by the way, the transformers, the movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> but by the time that came out, transformers weren't, they hadn't been around for, for that long, long enough for people to develop these like attachments to the characters. But you certainly didn't go into that expecting to see like, like these robot characters that you had some connection with getting brutally murdered. Not the least of, of which like when Optimus goes down, I still remember that thinking like, no, he's coming back. Right. No, no, he never, he, he does spoilers eventually come back in the series and I think they kind of like make a joke throughout the Transformers series of it where like in different Transformers seasons or series, they kill off the hero and then he comes back. Yeah. But at the I, time, you know, it was, it was like scarring. Well, it, especially for a time like the, and first of all, I, I just want to disagree with you. Luke losing his hand wasn't the worst part. It was finding out that he kissed his sister. That was the That's, worst part. Yeah. Cause Excellent. That's fair. Yeah. But, it's but a different anyway. kind of trauma, but yeah. <laughs> I, I digress. I feel like incest is worse than, than losing hand, but let's just move on. Let's get back to Transformers here. I mean, uh, fortunately that was never consummated. So, I mean. That we know of. Oh, yeah. oh, oh no. <laughs> Fucking deleted scenes. Christ, what, what were we even talking about again? I, I can't get the other stuff out of my head now. Um <laughs> Derek, set me up again. What? <laughs> I mean, so let's talk about just how the movie, the movie starts off with like, okay, it's one of the first times I think that you see Cybertron. Like you hear about the planet where the Transformers are from all the time, but you, it's the first time you get to see it in that scale. And then almost immediately, one of its moons is like horrifically destroyed by a planet eating Transformer. Well, it's so no, so that that's not exactly right. So the, 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 the planet. I'm so glad this see, is happening. Yeah. I'm sorry. I knew he- He's going to school us. So the planet you're seeing get eaten is a planet called Lithone, which is not associated with Cybertron at all. It's just another planet of robots because in this universe, there's a lot of planets with cybernetic life with a lot of robots running around. So Um, the moon was attacked later on. The moon was attacked later on. So there are two moves of Cybertron that get attacked later in the movie. 
Um, this was just another planet altogether because Unicron is just a is the chaos bringer. He just goes around the universe eating up planets. And I think it's important to understand too about this movie that this movie doesn't exist in a vacuum. You have mm-hmm. you, it's it's in continuity with the the cartoon that was going on at the time. So yeah. you had two seasons of the show that are happening in modern day, meaning 1985 at that point. Um, and then, you know, season two is off the air for the summer. Everybody goes out and sees Transformers, the movie and season three and four come back and, and Transformers, the movie is set in the year 2005, the future. That uh, is hilarious. If to you me. Will. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's set in the year 2005, which was 20 years from, you know, when the, when the series season two ended. And then when season three and four come back after the movie's been out, they are in that, that future 2006 universe now. Um, so it's not existing in a vacuum and, and where it's left off is the Autobots and Decepticons are fighting on earth and blah, blah, blah. And when this movie opens up, the Decepticons uh, have conquered Cybertron, have taken yeah. it over and defeated the Autobots. And the Autobots have had to essentially pull back to earth as their, as their place. But they've also taken over these two moons around Cybertron as staging bases. Wow. Well, okay, the narrator so- does describe some of that. Yeah. But briefly, it's it's like a cold viewing of it. That was hard. That was impossible to to pick up. I feel like you may have missed missed your opportunity to watch the first two seasons of the (laughs) television. I love that that's your take on it. (laughs) Well, then you just really should be watching the cartoons. You should go back. Um, (laughs) Uh, Well, kind of related to what you're saying. So like, and, and this ties in a little bit to what we were talking about just a couple minutes ago with all these kind of like horrific deaths and including Optimus Prime. I mean, wasn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but like, wasn't part of the intention of that is because they were, I mean, it's all tied back to merchandising. Yes. So they were wanting to introduce new toys. Well, so that's, that's a, that's a really, really good point. And this movie is like in, in a, in a, a decade where merchandising was so important to the media on like everything um, this movie is like above and beyond in a lot of ways. <clears throat> um, and so that like, that's, that was the reason to kill off like all of these characters. And, you know, you can, if you, if you want to watch the d- documentary of the, of the remember, you know, the cast and the writers remembering it, that's like one of the things they bring up a lot is like, we had to get rid of the 85 line to make way for the mm-hmm. 86 line. And this is how we did it. We killed off everybody in the movie. And it was just, I don't think they, if, they thought that like people would be so attached to these characters that they would be so affected by it. But there's, and there's so much in this film, like the original theatrical release. And I think if you watch the Blu-ray, I don't know if the one you guys had, it has a bad word in it. It has the word. Oh yeah. 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 And that was, that was hilarious. That was very strategically put in there to make sure that the film got a PG rating so that kids couldn't go watch it by themselves. They would have to go watch it with their parents. And so when then the kids were like, mom, I want this figure for Christmas mom and dad knew what the figure was because they had seen the movie with the kids. That wasn't the only reason why though. The other reason why was that the PG rated movies would get more, more screenings. Yes. Right. You, you so could, you could maximize screenings. how much time it got in the theater and you're pulling in the parents. Yeah. It, diabolical. Yeah. yeah they, it, they, they really knew what they were doing when they were marketing that film. Uh, just because they, you know, they, they knew that they were, you know, Hasbro was behind a lot of it. And, you know, this, I, I've known people who work for Hasbro now, it's still kind of the same way, you know, they need to sell toys. And so yeah. these things are kind of out there to help sell the toys. And, and there's a, there's a whole history too. 
specifically with Transformers, um, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but they were released in the U.S. under a different title because they're a Japanese toy series that had nothing to do with Autobots and Decepticons. And mm. when they got released here as that Japanese series, they did terrible. Nobody bought them. Nobody wanted them. And it wasn't until, um, until you know, Hasbro, you know, made a licensing deal with Takara, which is a Japanese company, and they approached Marvel Studios, who was run by um, Margaret Loesch at the time. And if you ever look up Margaret Loesch, like, she probably has as much to do with me, who I am today, as my own mother did. Like, because she did Aww. Transformers, wow. G.I. Joe, Muppet Babies. Yeah. You know, she was Muppet the head Babies! Of, yeah, she was the head of Henson, uh, I, I think, Henson Television or Movies at, for a while. Um, she's a fascinating woman. But she was the one who was like, oh, you guys, you're doing this wrong. Like you need to have a storyline for kids to fall. Cause I, I think it was specifically American kids need the external sort of media and storyline to like give them the sandbox to play in. Mm-hmm. And so then she, you know, hired the writers that became, you know, uh, Denny O'Neill, who um, was famous for creating dark, the darker version of Batman back in the sixties and mm-hmm. led to the Batman movie in 89 was a lot of, um, you know, kind of taken from his stuff. He was the one who came up with the name Optimus prime, uh, I think he came up with Megatron, you know, and and started coming up with these backstories. And so it, it was very important for that toy line to exist, to have the cartoon, the comic book, these characters. And, you know, and that's, that's, that's why it had this, uh, this sort of following, you know. That is, man, I that is fascinating. That they pulled the oh shit line straight from one of their meetings. Oh shit, what are we going to do now? <laughs> It does sound like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and to I have mean, it come from to have it come from the the kid character in the in the first two seasons, that character Spike was like the kid that you sort of identify with, and now he's an adult, and yeah. like it's showing you how he's an adult because he can say shit. I appreciate. Um, <laughs> th- I don't. I definitely didn't pick up on this originally, and I don't know if they even ever mentioned their last name. But the last, you know, the last name, right? W- Wiki. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because it's uh, Shia LaBeouf's character's last name in the Michael Bay Transformers oh movies. Oh my God. Yeah, so they just always have humans named Witwicky. And yeah, he's, the- supposed, he's supposed to be that character. Is he? Oh. Okay. He's to be that character in, in, in the Michael Bay movies. So I is like his dad connection. Spike? Um, is is uh, Shia LaBeouf's dad Spike so. or is he I, Spike? No, I Someone think- Spike. I think Shia LaBeouf's character is supposed to be Spike. Does he, you know, I, I have not watched enough of the Michael Bay films to. No, you've watched enough. Anything. If you've watched any of them, you've watched enough. I watched, I watched the, the first, first one, one in the theater good. when it came out. Yeah, the first one was good. The first one was good, but I think, you know, as much as this is a great opportunity to get really into the weeds of the animated movie, it's also a great opportunity to talk about how much I prefer this movie to most of the Michael Bay movies. That, I agree. Yeah, I I feel, I feel like this movie in a lot of ways has more story than the Michael Bay films do. It kind of does, and at at no point in this, even even though the animation overall is pretty good, the the effects in the Michael Bay Transformers movies sometimes I've I've heard it described as watching like a drum set fall down a flight of stairs because you just see a lot of things moving. You're not really sure what it is. Yeah, that's that was my complaint when I saw the first movie. Is that I also felt like the first movie wasn't was really, really about the, the, the human character mm-hmm. yeah. because, you know, if, if, you know, and I don't want to go off to a Michael Bay world here, but there's like these iconic moments that are, that are taken from Transformers, the movie, the animated one where 
Megatron and, and, and Optimus Prime are having their final battle and they're saying their famous lines, um, you know, one shall stand, one shall fall. And, but meanwhile, we're not on Optimus Prime or Megatron when that's happening. We're on Shia LaBeouf, like running through a ditch of like a bunch of metal that looks like, <laughs> it, it looks like, you know, a junkyard of an abstract artist, you know, like it's just, <laughs> just a bunch of stuff like thrown on the ground and, and, and some of it's moving and fighting, but we can't really make out what's happening. Um, and so like, that was a big complaint to me is that like, they really sidelined the Transformers and just made it about this, like, you know, this, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. It just, it wasn't about what I felt, what I wanted to see in the movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, you contrast that with the the animated 86 movie and the two humans are just kind of like there. Yeah. It's definitely, the story is not about them. The story is about this battle for <laughs> Cybertron and then yeah. this planet eating Monster, monster that shows up and one of the things i wanted to ask you about was i had heard that originally or at some point this was supposed to exist in a universe where where unicron was kind of like the antithesis of cybertron which also was a planet that could transform into a giant robot and they were like these protagonist antagonist like these forces that were in some epic battle yeah so that's interesting because um that actually was kind of in the, the original idea. I think one of the original storylines, one of the original scripts of the movie had Cybertron transforming into uh, a giant robot to fight Unicron. And what, be, what this kind of became, cause this became a big thing in, in the comic book series, which, um, uh, which was very different from the, the cartoons where the cartoons seemed to be more for kids at the comic series was a really long running series uh, for 80 issues and it kind of grew up with the readers. Hmm. And so, but there was this whole storyline about how Unicron and Primus were basically like, you know, dark and light, good God, yeah. and evil God. And Primus had settled himself into this one planet and started making his, you know, started making these like protecting offspring, which became the transformers. And Unicron just went around the universe eating everything until he found Primus so he could eat him. And so there was a, you know, and, and that actually has grown into a lot of the, uh, and the, uh, spinoff series or reboots that have happened later. Um, I think maybe even Michael Bay picked up on this for his films. Um, but it, it feels like that's kind of become canon for every other series that's come after. Yeah. I think that that mythology <clears throat> is really fascinating. I think the idea yeah. of just having, you know, a, a giant planetary planetary size robot that eats other planets is like that's how the movie starts and that's that's what like stuck with me through you know i guess up until i saw all my other heroes murdered you know i'm thinking yeah. like oh my god this planet thing's awesome oh shit all my heroes are dead <laughs> with it you know oh i'm sorry oh no i was just gonna say the thing that and this might be just the most simplistic take on this ever but the main reason why i was really sad about optimus prime dying is i love that actor's voice. Oh, Peter Cullen. Yeah. I could just listen to him all day. Yeah. And, and that, that actually really bummed me out. Yeah. <laughs> that was the well, reason hey, why I was really sad. <laughs> I heard it bummed him out too, because I heard that, uh, I, I've heard, uh, one of the, the story consultant talk about how that movie was nothing but like one long rewrite <laughs> all the yeah. time. And apparently they came and record voices and they handed in the script and he was like, wait, I die. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, Oh God, his voice is just, it's, it's a, a, just an amazing voice. You know? It's an amazing voice. And yeah. that's actually, um, 
probably one of the things that I remember most fondly from seeing the Shia LaBeouf version of the movie is yeah. that like that was one of my favorite things because it's the same actor, correct? He's always done it. Yeah, he's he's always done it. I mean, he even he they even got him back for the Michael Bay films. Yeah, like I thought that that was amazing. So yeah. um, love that. So that really bummed me out. But one thing that you've been mentioning um, a couple times that I just thought was really interesting. So what I noticed about this film, I, I mean, you're you're totally right. As somebody who came into it cold and also was not familiar with the television series, it. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, once you're about 20 minutes in, you're kind of following, like, yeah. even if you don't really know the characters or anything, like, you kind of get a get a general sense of what's happening. But I was really surprised by how much plot they burn through in yeah. this movie. Like, they really have it's the, yeah, like, the foot on the gas pedal the yeah. entire time. Yeah. <laughs> like, and And I was trying to think to myself, like, okay, so I'm an adult watching this it feels like a lot mm-hmm. but then i was trying to think okay as a child does that make more sense like do kids need to have kind of more of that constant stimulation of things happening to stay interested in the story i mean it, you know that's that's a that's a really good question i do remember leaving this film and being like whoa that was a lot to process <laughs> yeah <laughs> like just you know like all of my favorite characters just died they introduced a whole bunch of new characters and had them like in this, this constant fight for their life from, from almost from like scene one, you know? Um, and so definitely, you know, kids love to have constant action, always something going on. Um, I wonder how much of that though, was just them constantly need to be re- introducing new characters. Yeah. <laughs> Cause there's there were so like, many, there's something like 60 characters total in this film. That's, in, that's insane. That's insane, right? And and like, yes, you have your like main core characters that stand out front, but they've got all those characters that you've loved before that, sh- that are showing up in the background and playing really small roles. Um, and then there's those characters they meet along the way that are getting introduced. Um, it, there's It's a lot. Um, Which so, kind of yeah. just brings it back <laughs> to this really interesting, and I guess I sh- should not be surprised, but this really interesting kind of focus on again, the merchandising aspect and it's Mm -hmm. kind of hilarious to me, but I also feel like it's like something that's like so eighties that the people who were in charge of this movie and, and everything that goes along with it, were like, okay, so we're pushing these new toys. Forget about the kids trauma that might be, (laughs) that might occur from having all of their favorite characters die. Um, We, we need to get out these new, these new characters. Our new new toys. toys. The new toys will be the soothing balm for their psychological (laughs) trauma. And, you know, they sort of were to an extent. I, I will say that there was backlash for this, for some other projects they were working on because they were also working on a GI Joe movie at the same time. And mm. the G.I. Joe movie was supposed to have the main G.I. Joe character, Duke, Duke, die in the film. And there's a scene where he takes, uh, sorry guys, spoiler. There's a scene where he takes <laughs> a snake turned into an arrow to the heart. Uh, wow. And, uh, yeah. And that was supposed to be the end That's of it intense. for him. Yeah. He does have this really intense scene. Like, you know, everybody's like, we got to, you know, we got to defeat Cobra for Duke. But then at the end, there's a scene where it's like, Duke's going to be okay, everybody. Oh, <laughs> and, okay. and basically they were like, we had to do that because 
after what we did to the kids with Optimus Prime, we realized, wow, that was not a good idea. Like it just, it just didn't make us look good. So they, they, I don't think they felt like they could do it again. You know, they kind of got away with it the first time. That's hilarious. Yeah, I so, mean, I had a Rodimus Prime, and I'm like, this guy kind of sucks compared to Optimus. Well, you know, oh, well, it, can we talk about, because that was like the evolution of Hot Rod, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rodimus Prime. Can we talk about Hot Rod? Yeah, I hated Hot Rod. Sure. Let's, let's talk about Hot Rod. Look. <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, he rubbed me the wrong way from kind of the beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, look, I get it's an animated show for kids but like he completely gets in the way of optimus prime about to take out who is it again that's megatron there we go megatron and and then when he realizes that he is the reason for mortally injuring for, for optimus prime being mortally injured and he's like, could you ever forgive me? I'm like, this is so not about you right now, dude. <laughs> like, I, I, he just came across as a very selfish, immature character. And I don't know if that was completely intentional. I, 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 I think it's completely intentional. I think what it was is they were creating this very young, very self-centered teenager. I mean, that's what he was, you know? Okay. He's this really young kid. And you have the character Cup, who's the, like, old warhorse character, who's constantly sort of chastising him for this in the film. Right. Yeah. Um, because, you know, basically cups, like there's more important things to think about and, you know, and, and your, you know, your whole thing is like, Oh, I've got to be the one to get up. There. I mean, cup even warns him, like, stay out of that. Like Optimus prime has got this, mm-hmm. like that dude more mm-hmm. knows more about fighting Megatron than, than you'll ever know, you know? Um, and so I, I sort of feel like that's the thing is that we're supposed to have this, like, King Arthur sort of character, this mm. uh, this uh, Luke Skywalker sort of character, because you know Luke started out being kind of an annoying whiny kid. Yeah, you know, Hot Rod's sort of the same thing. I mean, you know, Luke didn't necessarily get his mentor killed specifically, <laughs> but I mean, you know, his <laughs> mentor a, died that's as well. Actually, really an uh, interesting comparison. Yeah, it, his his mentor dies as well, um, and and you know they both feel responsible for it, and hopefully that's. And, and, you know, and, and the the positive they can take out of that is that it'll change them to make them start growing up and, and Hot Rod's sense, quite literally, uh, to become a bigger, better person. You know, he becomes <laughs> like a giant RV, <laughs> yeah. a giant, a giant space RV is what yeah. he becomes. It's, it's, there, there's a marketing thing about that too, in that this was the first time with tra- the characters you were going to introduce in Transformers the movie, with the exception of Ultra Magnus. This is the first time um, the characters are being created by an American company mm. and the toys are being built off the designs for the movie and not the other way around. So every, everything had come from Japan originally um, for, you know, the first two seasons, Optimus Prime, all the Transformers we know and love. Um, and they had just been building the animation models off of those toys. Now we're doing it the other way around. They've created characters for the film and they're creating toys through the American company and not, not shipping them over from the Japanese company um, to, and to match those designs. So the toys themselves become a very different sort of experience um, and how they transform, how they put together sort of what comes with them. Um, Yeah. I'll give them credit for one thing, which is that at least we didn't really have to deal with the reluctant hero because hot rod was not reluctant to be a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I another thing that I found really fascinating is, like I said, I, I truly the only thing I knew about this film 
was that Orson Welles was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you knew two things right before we watched it. You knew well, the be- op- thanks to you. Yeah. Thanks to you, I knew that Optimus Prime Day. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I was going through the IMDb and I yeah. was like, hold up, Judd Nelson? Yeah. And I was like, huh, that is so interesting to me because – I, I don't know if you know any ba- – I, I mean, I know nothing. I know nothing about how that casting choice was made. But I found that so interesting because he was at the height yeah. of his popularity. But the height of his popularity was with, like, the teen and older crowd. Right. So I was curious, like, do you know anything about how that particular casting came about? Or I, you was know it what? just – Yeah. I don't know about that specifically. Uh, okay. you know, I, do, I do know that it's interesting that they did pick him to be the youngest character. Because mm-hmm. if you're looking at all the other actors that are picked, uh, like the, the big names that are picked for that film, you're talking mm-hmm. Orson Welles, Lionel Standard, mm-hmm. you know, who had done Silent, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Robert Stack. Mm-hmm. These are, these another are the great voice. voice. Yeah, another great, great voice. voice. By the way, the first time that guy had ever done animation. Yeah, he was Whoa. real nervous. He was super nervous. Yeah. yeah. There, there's he did that. great. He he um he has one of my favorite lines in the movie when they're in the shuttles escaping Earth, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, but when when they get separated and land on the different planets, at yeah. one point one of the Transformers tells Ultra Magnus that other shuttle just bought it. And I think Ultra Magnus's response is, I don't have time for that right now. Yeah, I I can't worry about that now. (laughs) But this film is so quotable to me, by the way, like everybody in this film has an amazing line or two. (laughs) And uh, I love it. But yeah, he's... What's the song, Paul? I know you know the song. Which which song are we talking about? You don't have to sing it. You're right. There are, there is a lot of... The Touch? Yeah, you got the, you got the Touch. The Touch by, by Stan, Stan Bush. And Yeah. uh, yeah. That song, written originally, by the way, for the Stallone film Cobra. Yep. <gasps> and he, it, Stan Bush, wrote that for Cobra, and his his publishing company was like, "Oh, we actually gave that to uh, Marvel Studios to do this this uh, this uh, Transformers movie." And he was like, "What? <laughs> what the hell? Why would you do that?" And now he gets invited every year to Botcon to still play that song for them. So he's like, "Yeah, I'm cool with it. <laughs> I'm still making lots of money off that song." <laughs> what a weird connection. Because, okay, so that is not Vince DiCola. No, no Vince DiCola wrote the score. Although DiCola and Bush worked together pretty closely uh, on the song Dare. Um, yeah. And so, and they still, they'll still perform those songs together. They still work pretty closely on this stuff. Dare the, is the song when you first see Hot Rod and uh, the w- Wiki Kid. I'm going to call kid. him that. Okay, yeah. like when fishing like, or whatever. Yeah, right after they're fishing and they're like racing to... Uh, Got it. Yeah. Well, the reason why I, when you were mentioning the other um, musician is because, <laughs> so like when I was doing kind of my research and all the people behind the scenes for the film, what I thought was hilarious, well, I shouldn't say hilarious because I'm not saying it in a disparaging way, but, um, <laughs> but Vince DiCola, so he was the composer on a video called... Frank Stallone, Far From Over. Oh. Yeah, so okay. so he has that. And then he was the composer on Rocky Four. Yes. And Rocky Four is what brought him to the attention of the producers of this film. And Got specifically, it. one of the things that 
when you hear Unicron, the music when Unicron is like floating through space, there's like this menacing. The, the first, uh, those, those little. I actually uh, really things. like that. That, that, is, that is my favorite piece of music on the internet. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's, That's it's borrowed amazing. from uh, Drago's. Yes, I did like read the, that. Yeah, the theme that you would hear when Drago was introduced around in, in Russia. So, And they, then I just have to say this real quick, because then one of also Deco one of Decola's more recent projects mm -hmm. is he worked on the soundtrack for Stallone, colon, Frank, that is. <laughs> I, just, I was like, wow, this guy really gets along well with Frank Stallone. Because yeah. <laughs> one I mean, of his earliest credits and latest credits is for Frank Stallone. <laughs> He just he's done a lot of he's done a lot of Stallone stuff. I don't know what the connection <laughs> yeah. is. Like he just I it's just you know, and and he has I mean to me, you know, he has that sound that which it's that very 80s synthesizer sound, which mm -hmm. I feel like kind of worked great in Transformers, because Transformers are supposed to sound spacey. You know, like he wrote for Transformers, he wrote and he said this before, he's wrote an orchestral score but played it all on synthesizer. Yeah. But that also seems to be kind of what he's doing for a lot of his stuff. So, it's like, that's know. just my deal. Just, and, and you know what? That's cool. Hey, I love synths in general. So, you know, you can do it if, if he makes it work. It's just, it does, like, when you hear his stuff, you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's Vince DiCola. <laughs> like, I can hear, I can hear he's using a lot of those motifs again, you know? Well, kind of like an interesting throwback is that I was kind of, because so his composing credits are relatively few. But then he has a lot of like soundtrack credits. And one of his soundtrack credits is from the show Glow. Interesting. And set in the 80s. Right. So Which, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. You would have, you know, if you, you'd kind of want the king of 80s synth m music, you know, movie music yeah. <laughs> to do that. And yeah. Yeah, I thought I'm that was kind surprised. of a cool yeah, connection. That's cool. That's but. That actually does kind of tie into another question I had, which I didn't know if you had any background on this. So like we've kind of talked at length about how there definitely was an agenda to get in these new characters because they're going to eventually hopefully translate into toy sales. Right. I was curious because for being a relatively short film, it's under an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of music that's pushed through. It's a, a lot musical. of different songs. Yeah. yeah it's like <clears throat> almost a musical. And I didn't know, you know, and, and it seems like from what you two are telling me, um, and I apologize that I couldn't really discern this, that a lot of the songs were repeated. They were. Yeah. 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 We saw, we heard yeah, Dare several times. Several times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Touch several times. That one I could, I, I could, yes, um, yeah. remember from, you know, it being played 10 minutes earlier. Right. Um, but was there anything there? Were they like trying to push a particular soundtrack or was that just something that like stylistically they thought yeah. would work for the film? I think I, well, so I definitely think they felt stylistically it would work with the film. Uh, Vince okay. DiCola himself has talked about how, like when they were like, you know, basically we're going to get all these like hair metal bands <laughs> you know, to do all the music. And he was like, uh, all right. And then when he heard the film, he's like, Oh, everything actually kind of works well together. I'm surprised. <laughs> um, and, and like, there's, there's stories about, you know, working with the bands too, because they all knew most of them knew their, their songs were going to be in the film. Um, Even kickaxe. Uh, well, kickaxe thought their song was going to be in the film that they, they had two songs in the film, but when they got put on the soundtrack, uh, the producers decided that that name sounded too racy. So they changed their name to spectral general without telling the band. <laughs> so the band was like, oh. Oh, we're going to get all this exposure. And then they were like, wait, nobody knows who we are. 
<laughs> which is insane because like we're about to kill we're about to kill this whole generation's childhood, but we're afraid of kick axe. Yeah, we're we're afraid of <laughs> and we're gonna put we're gonna put shit in the title. And like they changed the lyrics for the song um Instruments of Destruction, which is my my favorite song off the soundtrack by the group NRG. They they had them change some of the lyrics because they thought some of the lyrics were too racy. And I was like, that's during the scene where Megatron is like killing a bunch of your childhood favorites right at the beginning. So, I'm like, if you are paying attention to the lyrics, you are missing <laughs> what is going on in the scene. One of my uh, favorite things about Megatron is that they like we have all these like crazy there are, like shows like the toys that made us. This yeah. is literally a toy that's a robot that transforms <clears throat> to gun. Yeah, like that's his transformation. Not like a kick-ass ambulance or like big rig. He just fucking turns into a gun. And then usually like Starscream would use him as a gun and blast people. Right. One of the things about the moment that you just talked about when he starts blasting is I think it's the first time Megatron ever actually hits his target in, in the first shot. <laughs> but, but, the, but all the Autobots can't like, no, if you notice yeah. like the, the Decepticons just like cover their eyes or whatever, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like all the blasts are going around them. But like soon as Megatron, you know, as soon as Starscream pulls the trigger, like, you know, that, that, that bullet will find them, you know? Um, it, it, the thing about that scene that's very interesting is it really sets, I, you know, this film has a lot of those tone setting scenes because, you know, the scene with Unicron at the beginning, yeah. it's kind of a beautiful scene. We can go back and talk about that. But um, but this is the first time where you've realized just how bad a bad guy Megatron is and just how bad a bad guy can be, right? Yeah. He's opened the movie by murdering your childhood favorite heroes. And like, and these are like some favorites, right? Like this is Braun, who's the first one to get healed, who's supposed to be like one of the strongest Autobots, dead, right? Prowl, who's like the the tactician character, and then Ironhide, who's like the second in command that everybody kind of loves. Yeah, just right then, you know. Um, so it, it really sets a tone that like, oh, this isn't this isn't the this isn't the Transformers that you've been watching on TV for the last two years. This is something different, and you know, it, it's a lot more and a little bit violent, and and the stakes are a lot higher. You know? In uh, Megatron's defense, he didn't actually pull the trigger, though. He just was the trigger <laughs> until until that scene with Ironhide, which is so rough, where Ironhide, oh, yeah, like, yeah. still gasping for life, grabs his you know ankle like to try to stop him, and <laughs> Megatron he gets his head blown off and blows his head off. Like, yikes! <laughs> you just you don't see it because you just see Megatron standing over him and the cannon on his like right arm. Yeah, you just see it like blow that dude away. Oh, <laughs> You're like, I, holy shit. I will say there's some great little filmmaking going on there too. I feel like some good, some good editing where it's all any, you know, you, you see the, the cannon, you know, kind of build up his energy charge and slowly fire down and there's an explosion and it cuts to the outside of the ship. You know, it's all kind of implied. You don't need to see the gore, but it's just that much more horrifying. I remember sitting around talking with my friends on the playground the next day, like about Aww. that specifically. So it's interesting that you bring up the editing because it seemed like some of the transitions were like, I was expecting a commercial break in some of them. Cause it would just like fade out yeah, and then come back. And I'm like, that was weird. Well, I want, I mean, let's talk about it because what I found really, really interesting about the person who was the editor. So David Hankins, mm-hmm. he wasn't really an editor or what? at least that is not what the bulk of his IMDb credits reflect. So he does have a couple traditional editing credits to his name, but he has 78 sound credits. 
So that was his bread and butter is he was a sound effects editor. Hmm. And I didn't know, Paul, if you knew about why he got that gig. I, you know what? I don't know. Um, And, and, but it, he has been running around that sort of Sunbow, who was the production company universe. Okay. He also worked on like GI Joe. Yeah. Mother babies. My little pony, (laughs) the movie. Um, You know, like he was, he was working on a lot of stuff in that. And I can almost imagine it being like, well, Hey, you know, he, he wants to edit this. Like, why don't we give the guy a chance? And I will say it's probably, there's some really effective sound edits in this film. Mm-hmm. The way the, the, the sound works with the image. Um, like if we're talking about that, let's go back to the unicron scene at the very beginning. Okay. Let's talk about that. Cause I have one complaint about that scene. Okay. What my, one of the things that I find beautiful about that scene is you again, you have that, that music like ding, 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 you know, that starts it out and it's coming out of the black and you just have this like big opening shot of like unicorn floating in space by himself, you know? Oh, and it's like that side, like it, it kind of like passes by the camera and you yeah. kind of get a sense of the scale of, of right. how and, big it is. And, and like, you it's know, like it, the opening to star Wars. Yes. Yes. Right. It, it, they, they do that. And, and, it, but in the, the, the sound is just so important at those moments because it sounds very quiet and lonely and starts building and building as you get closer to this planet. That's like thriving with robotic, but thriving with life only to have Unicron do his thing and destroy it all, you know? And his thing is like a chomp, chomp noise. Like you would hear in a video game. <laughs> yeah. That's that, the only complaint I have is like chomp, yeah. chomp, chomp. <laughs> There, there are a couple of those moments in the film where I'm like, what did you get? Like, yeah. I guess it's the only sound effect you had, but did you run out of time? I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know Actually, why that chomp chomp sound happened. From a sound perspective, the only thing that I was like, I wish they could maybe diversify it a little bit, but I suppose it's supposed to be this. How dare you? Iconic sound is the, the transformation sound. I can't even begin to even try to do it. Yeah. 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 You, you have to have that be the same because kids are doing it on the playground every day. You know, the, there was that, a lot of that, it. And that makes sense. And yeah, see, that's the thing. There was a lot of it. Yeah. And I kind of was like, okay, we get it. We get it that the transformer, <laughs> like, it, it just, that was the only thing that was like, okay, I'm, I, I'm kind of over the whole transformer sound. No, I, I'll I never get over it. <laughs> there, was, there was some good diversity with that, though, in, in certain things. Like, like, there's a great moment when, when, um, when Starscream, they're at the attack on Autobot City is over, and Starscream is like, "We got to get out of here," and he's like, "Astro Train, transform and get us out of here." And yes. Astro Train turns into that locomotive, right? And it, it's a much slower transformation that leads into that like locomotive sound. Yeah, um, and that's like, a good point. Yeah, that's you know, point. It, it depends on on who you're, you know, who's fighting at the time, you know, like, like prime when he shows up on the scene uh, to fight Megatron and he turns into the truck for the first time, uh, has a much slower transformation sound. It has a little more gravitas to it, you know? Yeah. And then later in the film, they just speed up that sound. Like when hot rod and cup are escaping from the uh, shark decons. Oh yeah. The demolition derby. Yeah. I, I always wondered why they didn't just call them piranacons. They looked more like piranhas. There's, there's. It's funny because in that scene, there's like a bunch of different kinds of Sharktacons, and they're just now. They're literally just now making toys for some of those. But um, uh, they all fans have given them a bunch of different names over the years, and I don't know why Piranacons has never been a thing. Speaking of other kinds of cons and bots, Dinobots. Oh uh, yeah, 
Why did they make them sound like they... Like cavemen. Yeah, that's what I said last night. They make them sound like cavemen. Yeah, it, it it's a it's a it's a funny bit of Transformers mythology. So the in the series, they were introduced in um, season one. Okay. And they were they were created as basically, you know, the 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 premise of Transformers is they're on the ship, they crash land on Earth four million years ago, nineteen eighty four, which actually happened, Mount St. Helens erupts, and when it erupts, it wakes them up. And um, they work that into the story. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a that's wow. That, that's that was kind of genius. <laughs> you you yeah. know what? I don't think in they they specifically say it's Mount St. Helens in the television series, but in the comic books they specifically reference it because it was the same wow. year. People were dealing with that in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it, it's there. Uh, it, it's um, you know, yeah. They really worked it in so that you know it it actually had like a real world meaning to it, but when they. They're, they're inside of this volcano. And at some point the character Wheeljack finds dinosaur fossils. And he's like, I wonder if we can turn these into robots, you guys. <laughs> and, and so they kind of create them there on earth. And I'm trying to remember exactly what the storyline was. Like if they didn't have like everything to make it perfect or whatever. And because of that, you know, I, it's a kid's show. They were probably just like, right. this is what dinosaurs talk like, you know, and it be, kind of became part of the character. There's a whole thing in the comics where they explain it as like somebody had their their chip malfunctioning. They're actually really <laughs> smart, but they just talk like that. <laughs> well, so it, it's so it's so ridiculous. Like I don't know why I was so kind of insulted on their behalf, but I was like, <laughs> I feel like dinosaurs would be much smarter than they're depicting them. It, Maybe not. They had arguably very small brains yeah after but... the 20th after like the 20th me grimlock i'm like oh yeah i'm so, I'm so sorry this keeps I'm, happening yeah. <laughs> yeah but oh go ahead no no I'm, go ahead on the opposite end of the spectrum although i know i'm sure that you're well aware of the story behind this i gotta say like there wasn't a lot he didn't have a lot of speaking parts but i did love Orson Welles as she was Unicorn. Great, yeah. yeah. So um, go ahead. There's a, there's a lot to that story too. Like, yeah. um, you know, he hated it. Mm-hmm. He, like they, I think there was uh, if uh, IMDb has this quote from him where like somebody was like, Oh, who are you in this movie? He was like, I'm a big toy that like fights little toys. Like, I don't know. You know, it's not, it's not wrong. <laughs> but there's, uh, you know, I've read, read things with, um, uh, Oh man, I'm trying to remember the name of the actor who played Springer. But he tells a story of like the the voice director, um, uh, Wally Wally Burr. Wally Burr. Yeah. yeah, Wally Burr being like they everybody was like, oh, Wally Burr was like a tough guy. Like he he could be one of those guys that would make everybody go through you know go through it like a hundred times, and they'd be like, oh, well, the truth is we got the best work out of it, so I can't be mad at the guy, you know. But before he was going to do this with Orson Welles, Orson Welles was like, I'm going to work alone. I'm just going to come in and do my own thing. He was also really sick at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they started playing the frozen peas commercial. Have you guys heard that? No, no. Oh my gosh. You should look it up. There's it's, it's a bootleg that tra- got handed around like on reel to reel tape for decades. And now you can find it on the, on the internet, but it's, Orson Welles totally destroying a director doing a voiceover for frozen peas, like a commercial. <laughs> and he's just like, you are an idiot. Like this is terrible copy. Like he just destroys him. And so Wally Burr is like playing that for everybody. And he's like, I guess this is what I got. to got to go through. Like, I don't know. But apparently according to, um, according to some of the other actors, like 
it was just fine. Like he came in and he did his lines. He was great. The, the problem was, I guess they were, because he was so like a little bit wheezy at the time Mm -hmm. and really out of breath, they were like, I don't know if we can use this because he doesn't sound good. And then they started putting it through audio filters and like adding that, like, you know, adding that really like deep bass to it, the echoey. And then they were like, wow, this sounds really creepy now. So, (laughs) you know, it It worked worked really well. It came through really well. It really works well. And there were rumors for years that Leonard Nimoy, who plays Galvatron had stepped in to finish some of his lines. But, um, uh, I believe it was Susan blue who played RC confirmed. She was like, no, no, he finished all his lines. Leonard Nimoy didn't have to finish anything for him. I mean, the story of that reminds me a lot of kind of the stories you hear about uh, Marlon Brando in the like latter stages of his career where, and I kind of get it and I'm not, I'm really not again, trying to, to be disparaging in any way, but I, I get it. This is the guy behind citizen Kane (laughs) and you know, um, had had obviously a couple other really great hits, but I I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, his potential was maybe not fully realized. And then here he is, um, forty years later, yeah. forty five years later. You know, I I understand why he wouldn't get it, yeah. why he wouldn't understand this culture and you know the importance that it had for our younger generation. Yeah, it was, um, it was not yeah. it was not the same for him. You know, yeah, he, he just he didn't he didn't understand what what this movie would be or what it would and you know he mm-hmm. didn't get to see it because I think he passed away before. Yeah, very soon after. Yeah, um, um, but he was great, and and it is kind of actually for me, despite how he felt about the film, I think it's like actually really cool that you have somebody from that that yeah. early Hollywood era. Yeah, that is part of this. Like that's a really cool connection. And, and it's, yeah, I don't know. Like, like I said, you know, I, I loved every time he was on screen or his voice was being heard. And, um, and I do think that it gives it, I mean, look, all the, all the actors that they had were great. And I was actually very shocked that there were so many really well-known actors who were, who were part of it. Um, You mentioned, and I kind of, I mean, I don't want to like, go down a whole rabbit hole with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned Susan blue. Yep. And See? yeah. And I'm just curious, you know, what your thoughts are on kind of the way that this whole world of the transformers, um, embraces or doesn't embrace a young female audience. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting you bring that up. Cause there's, there's been a, like, I feel like there's a lot in this film and, and I think Susan blue has even said that she believes this too. There's a lot in this film that actually opened up uh, this level, this section of fandom to girls and women. And there's a lot that starts here. Like Susan blue herself says that like until this movie, most of the roles she was getting was playing young boys, Mm. you know, playing children. And, it was actually Ron Friedman, who was the writer of the film that like fought hard to put a female character in here. And they were like, why would robots have men and women? You know? And he was like, well, why would they have men? You know, like, why would they all be men? They could all be women. Yeah. They could be all, you know, why would they even have, yeah, these gender- yeah. Yeah, why would they have these gender roles at all? Um, and, uh, but he, he had daughters and he was yeah. like, you know, I, 
I would like it if there was a, a strong, at least one strong female character in here. Um, and so Susan Blue says, though, that like after this movie, it really opened up her career to being able to play other things in what was traditionally considered uh, sort of the boys mm-hmm. toy box. You know, there were there we could start getting female characters. And I think it's it's no coincidence that R.C. herself tends to have like buns on the side of her head. You know, because you, you're, you're looking at inspiration coming from Princess Leia herself, you know. And so there's there's a line through there to fandom being more open and and um, accepting of women. It's probably not 100 percent at that point, but you know mm-hmm. it, it's it's getting there, and we can kind of start seeing it start with that film. As a matter of fact, in in this television series, I think it was the season before, but while they were making this movie, they introduced more female characters that lived on Cybertron. Okay. So yeah, like evil female characters. No, there there was like a, there was like a resistance cell of all. Very oh. female-oriented uh, characters, and of course, you know Hasbro wasn't going to make the toys from it. It was imp- they never made an RC toy at the time. Oh, RC never okay. got a toy. They were like, boys won't play with it. Um, as a matter of fact, she's she finally got a toy in 2014, and they've got new versions of her coming out now. Um, this has all really changed, and those characters that they introduced in season two, they're now making action figures of those characters now. <laughs> it only took them 35 years to get around to it. Yeah. When they realized that, like, oh, maybe, maybe if we make, uh, maybe if girls can see themselves in these characters too, maybe they would want to play with them too. You know, it's just if you don't give them anything to see themselves in, why would they want to? You know. And you know what? I think that brings up kind of an ongoing uh, conversation that Derek and I have had through kind of actually all the episodes of this podcast. Yeah. With you know, recognizing the era in which these movies were made. Yeah. And, you know, I can't, hmm, I, I I can't necessarily fault it. It's a, it's an eighties movie. I understand why. And especially from a monetary point of view, you know, we've been talking again at length about kind of the merchandising factor and, and I, I get why at that time they may not have thought that making, uh, you know, more female friendly figures mm-hmm. would sell. Right. Um, I will say that like, and maybe this is just because I literally watched it for the first time as an adult in 2020, but, um, you know, yeah, there's a lot of action and dancing different. Di- oh yeah. Actually, that's actually a really good free point. Yeah. There's the dancing. Um, it, it probably does skew, uh, more towards like traditionally like male, yeah. or masculine type action and storyline. But I didn't I didn't feel like it was like too broy. Um it yeah. to me at least, but yeah, go I ahead. mean I, I, I rewatching again last night too, I was kind of, you know, kind of had that in my head because, you know, every, these days every time I watch a a film from the eighties, there's something that really jumps out at me. Uh, you know, right. I think we, we we talked, you know, the follow up about about your Beetlejuice podcast where you guys were pointing out just like, Oh wow. That stuff really, really looks really bad. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, But when I was watching this one, I was noticing moments like there's a very clear moment where, where hot rod comes up and he's like, Hey RC, I'm going to save you. And she's like, uh, -uh, dude, I'm about to save you. You know, where she gets great moments. She's not always the damsel in distress. distress. It's, compounded by a later and this is just an aside i watched some of the japanese television series that went on way after ours did and they did nothing but make that character subservient to all the american male characters in the show wow 
it, wow. it actually watching it, I was kind of disgusted by it because she just becomes basically a mother nursemaid character to, to Daniel to the point that you're like, wow, it's really obvious that you guys are like, we're not cool with gr- this girl character. <laughs> with a strong female character. Yeah. But in the film, you know, it, it, there's, she, she has her moments of being like right up there with everybody else um, and, and being able to, to hold her own in a lot of ways. She takes out one of the, uh, what are they? Junk, junkie, on, junkie, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. With her, uh, James Bond esque little. Oh yeah. Wheel. The, the wheel, the wheel, uh, what is it? The blades that come out of her yeah. wheel. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that as a child, I mean, look, probably the reason why I saw it for the first time as an adult is as a child, transformers weren't really part of my, uh, my toy world, right. <laughs> but it certainly wasn't because, um, I mean, I don't like, here, here's for me the contrast. As a child, G.I. Joe was for boys. It felt like there wasn't really a place for, yeah. like, I, I just never even really went down that path because it just felt very masculine. Right. And, and, and of course, there are little girls who gravitate towards things that are more masculine. I just wasn't one of those little girls. Right. Um, I think Transformers, I think there was just, you know, there's a wealth of other things going on. Big, you know, Barbies and the Muppet Babies oh, yeah. and the whole thing. So like, you know, as a kid, you can only have so many things uh, to focus on. But I do think that what is interesting about Transformers is like something that is really universal about it is I think that I know this sounds so simplistic, but the transformation of the toy is something that is equally appealing to boys and girls. I think that that's something that's just like a really neat thing that kids in general could be fascinated by. So I don't, I don't know really where I'm going with that, but I never got the sense that transformers were like made just for boys per se. It's, it's really, it's a really, that's a really, really good point. Cause one of the things I've always said, and I, I seriously gave a talk about this at my office to my team. Because uh, I, I actually at work, I have a large Transformer collection on my desk. Nice. One of the things that, about Transformers, and I've heard this said before, is that like it was kind of the Rubik's Cube you could play with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's an engagement there um, that you don't get with a lot of other toys. Like G.I. Joe's, which I also really like. But G.I. Joe's are like, here's the action figure, here's the gun, pew, pew, pew. You know, yeah. with Transformers, uh, you know, half the time, uh, and Derek, I don't know if you had this experience as a, as a boy in the era, but you'd get a transformer and you wouldn't open the instructions immediately. It'd be like, let me see if I can do this by myself. Yeah. You know, let me see if I can transform this. Let me see if I can figure this out. Um, and and it, it's, it, it has a level of engagement that I, I'm hard pressed to think that any other toy series has, mm-hmm. you know. And, I and totally it, agree. As a, as a creative, it's one of the reasons I like having them on my desk because literally if I am totally stumped by an edit or something like that, I will pick up a transformer and sit there and transform it for a little bit. You know, it just helps my just mind. Get your like, brain, yeah, yeah, moving in a different way. So yeah. related question, do you ever go through that same process with any GoBots? I do. I have a GoBots collection. Oh my God. Uh, the thing about GoBots is they are much more simplistic. Yeah. Um, and actually we're here in the US first. Uh, and they're always considered, I, I've heard them called the poor man's transformers, but they, they weren't that much cheaper. <laughs> no, the, they, that was not a reference to the price as much as it yeah. was just the, um, surrounding mythology and, yeah. and everything else, the level of interest, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I, it definitely, you know, that was, a, that was a series that like, I don't know if you've, I've watched some of that show and it is much more simplistic than the transformers. Yeah. 
Um, and the transformations of those were, they were usually like, bend them over, push the arms in, you're done, you know? <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, two things that I, I, I want to make sure we bring up because I feel like it's um, it's kind of a funny way to kind of tie the past to the present. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you know, again, another thing that Derek and I have kind of joked about on the podcast is how a lot of like 80s films that were like, quote, made for kids are like have really adult things going on. Right. Um, this film included with yeah, the, yeah. with so many deaths. And outside of that, I found it so funny that like literally the end shot is just Unicron's head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And that, by the way, that becomes like a, for the, for season three, that becomes a regular point that they keep coming back to that Unicron's head is up there and there's something to do with Unicron's head or yeah. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. I was like, that is a real dark way to end a kid's animated movie. Massive decapitated head now in orbit around the planet. planet. Yeah. (laughs) But it felt so eighties to me. I was like, it's kind of the perfect way to end this movie. Um, It's that like, Hey, there might be a sequel, you know, like it's the next season, you know, Unicron could come back. (laughs) Well, Galvatron for sure does. Galvatron does come back. Yeah. Yeah. Play uh, Leonard Nimoy is not playing his voice for the television series. He's played by Frank Welker who played, Megatron previously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the the point that I wanted to ask about with um, mm-hmm. kind of tying it into the present is, mm-hmm. you know, you are a father, mm-hmm. and so I was curious. Uh, I feel pretty confident that you have introduced your kids yeah. to because I think I've seen them playing with them. Yes. Um, but how like. What do you see them gravitating towards this world the same way that you did? Do they have just a different take on it given a generational difference? Like what have you seen in your children as far as how connected they might be to this or not? And and do you think that like, and I'm not, and this isn't in a disparaging or negative way, but like your love for it has that like kind of like by osmo- osmosis <laughs> been passed on to them. Yeah. You know, it, it, that's interesting. Cause you know, this is a series that's been going, it's still going on. Right. You know, it's been 40 years and kids are still buying Transformers. It's still one of the hottest selling toys every year. Um, I have introduced my kids to it for sure. You know, especially now they make so many different levels of Transformers that, you know, I've been able to even get my three-year-old daughter her own Transformer. My son has had various, you know, as he gets older, he gets a little more complicated. I've even let him start playing with my more complicated ones. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a mistake, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I definitely notice with my son, he loves Legos in a way that I couldn't get into. Um, and so I've even found there was a short lived series of Lego style transformers. Uh, mm. And it's, you put the combination of the two together and he's like, I can build this thing and then transform it into something else. Like, cool. You know, uh, I have noticed though, like we started watching the original series and he definitely had like a, yeah, this is okay, but I like that newer one better. You know, mm. uh, I started reading him the original comics from the eighties. We were reading a few issues of that. And like, there's definitely moments where he was like, dad, can you skip ahead to where something happens? <laughs> there's, you know, as an adult reading, reading the comics, by the way, as an adult, like they're pretty good. There's a lot of cool stuff in there for the older crowd, but um, he's, he's didn't pick on it. I didn't, I t- gravitate to it the way Mm -hmm. I had, but they definitely do. You know, I definitely see them like in transformers. Hank has my son who's six um, has memorized like all the characters names and he definitely has his favorite. And my daughter's just kind of starting to get into it with him. Mm -hmm. Who's his favorite. 
uh, it, it changes, but um, he's, <laughs> he's really for a while he was really into Shockwave, uh, and and he really liked Megatron Tank, not Gun, because um, <laughs> we've I sort of like glossed over the fact that the original Megatron was a gun. We'll just totally get that. that yeah. yeah. Um, and so yeah, actually, I don't know if I should be worried, but he tends to like the bad guys more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because they're always, I mean, I think that's actually the most normal thing in the world Yeah, because yeah. they're usually more fun and entertaining. They have yeah. personality. Yeah. Yeah. They always yeah. turn into cool. Like in the first, like the first series of Transformers, I always kind of like the bad guys more because guns aside, they still turned into like jets and like cassette decks with yeah, sound wave. Yeah. And then Autobots turned awesome. into cars and cars were cool, but you know, the Decepticons seem to have just a little bit more like interesting things going on, you know? Soundwave was a robot that would turn into a cassette player that would shoot out a pterodactyl cassette tape. That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He, yeah. You could, you could, yeah, you would actually, the tapes could then transform. And like the version they released in Japan came with like headphones yeah. and things like that. So that like, if you wanted to walk around pretending you were listening to this cassette deck, you could, <laughs> you know? Well, I think one thing that's so interesting, cause like it's, it's very trendy right now to bring in, in so many different ways, bring back, you know, older, like older movies they're rebooting. And, mm-hmm. and I know that like with some toy series, I, I can't like put complete like authority into this, but I, I feel like, you know, my little pony, which was something that I played with mm-hmm. went away for a real long time mm-hmm. and then kind of came back. Um, and yeah. that's happened with other kinds of toys, but I feel like, especially somebody like you who is just so knowledgeable about this world. Like it's really interesting. The staying power of the transformers, they never really went away or did they, am I wrong in that? Well, they had like a, I'm going to say like a four year period where they just kind of disappeared (laughs) from here. Um, 1990, 91 maybe was the last year they got released in the U S that wasn't the case in Japan. In Japan, they just kept going. Um, they were still pretty popular there. Um, and it wasn't until I think 1994, 95 that they introduced something called Gen- Transformers Generation 2, where they just kind of recolored some of the mm-hmm. Transformers from the original series and started releasing those in like discount toy stores. But what really got them back was the introduction in 96, I believe it was, of um, Transformers Beast Wars, which mm. was a huge like television series and... Um, uh, and toy series uh, for uh, in the, in the U S and like really put them back on the map. And like, I, it hasn't slowed down since then. One of the things they've been really good at, and this might've been the problem with the original series is the original series was almost just like new series and uh, new toys, part of the same storyline. Whereas now maybe like every two or three years, it's like they're, they're doing a new storyline with completely new characters, new designs. Um, and, and they're releasing toys on different levels. So you, you, you have your like things for, you know, boys six to 10 years old, but then you have mm-hmm. them for, I, I say boys, but you know, they've actually made the more first line. Um, they, then you have them for the like toddlers and mm-hmm. you have them for that, that um, three to six year old crowd. And you have the, collector's masterpiece editions which are for the uh, 30 and up crowd you know <laughs> you want to spend like hundreds of dollars on a transformer yeah there's some that are quite quite pricey i think that actually uh, recently they just had a kickstarter pretty much on the hasbro website for yeah. a unicron that is like four feet tall 
and six hundred dollars. <laughs> oh my god! It's, it's Lord. A, they've only made they've only, <laughs> they never made a Unicron in the original series, the original Toy Series, and it wasn't until two thousand four that you got a, a smaller one. But now they've made like a a really really big one. <laughs> I don't like that. Like Hasbro has this like Hasbro labs thing with Kickstarter yeah, things. Right. I'm like you're Hasbro. You could just, yeah, <laughs> you could just produce some toys for sale. I mean, I think yeah. the problem is, is like, you know, they, they've done it. The thing they just did was the, um, uh, Oh man, I'm forgetting the name of the ship from the Mandalorian. Mandalorian. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, that was a $350. I think if they just put that out in toy stores, it'd have been like, okay, let's see if anybody buys this and they might be stuck with some stock that they end up having to sell for half price. But yeah. this Kickstarter model lets them, you know, do some pretty Age. crazy ideas to see if people yeah. actually want to buy it. You know, if you don't want to pay $600 for a, a you know, a, a Java sale barge, <laughs> then we just won't make it. But if, Hey, if enough people want to do that, okay, we'll make one for those people, you know? Yeah. And it unlocks like, depending on how many people like get into it. It's like, okay, now we'll, we'll also unlock a baby Yoda. I mean, yeah. the child, the child. The yeah. child. we know yeah. a lot of friends who have the child that that's someone like hotcakes. Oh yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different models. I'm, yeah. I'm assuming of the child. But, I like the yeah. plush. Yeah. Like the plastic is like weird. Anyway, oh, yeah. anyways, um, Hasbro Kickstarter. Yeah. I mean, except <laughs> with, with those few years, uh, as the exception, I mean, overall, cause like, you know, yeah. I was, a, I was a Barbie girl. Uh, growing up. And though I am fully aware that Barbies are still on the market, I think that um, from my limited kind of keeping up with the toy knowledge, it's become more of a collector type of thing. And I think that, and, and I'm not, I'm not really too sad about that because I think in large part, the reason why maybe the popularity isn't what it once was is because of literally the uh, unreal, like fully unrealistic depiction of Barbie and we could go down that whole path and we will yeah. today. But, um, and so there have been other versions of dolls that have come to more accurately reflect, uh, you know, a, a more realistic body and also different kinds of, you know, ethnicities and so on and so on. Um, and I think again, that is the difference. What we were kind of talking about earlier with the transformers is that it has kind of this universality about it. Yeah. Um, if you like dinosaurs, you're in. If you like construction, <laughs> if you like construction, we got you. Right. Do you like trains that turn into space shuttles? Cool. But it, it, yeah. I mean, and at its like core, I think it's like creation, you know, because you're creating yeah. something out of something different. And I think that that like that is that is universal. I don't think that that's something that is just for, um, you know, a boy or a girl or or anywhere yeah. in between. So. Um, yeah, I, I just think that's really cool. And this is honestly, I I really, even though Derek was joking with me for like several weeks now about, you know, me going to hate this movie. I'm happy and- to see how deeply affected you have been from this. <laughs> I knew that this was going to be an amazing conversation because you love this so much. And honestly, I've learned so much like it you gave like a legit history lesson on it, and that's the kind of stuff that I find so interesting. Um, so thank you so much. Like oh, this has been amazing. It's it's nice to have somebody actually want to hear all this useless information. <laughs> <laughs> to be I, fair, we want to hear it. We're not sure if anyone else is going to, but, <laughs> but we're here talking about no, it. That's I, all that matters. If you guys I mean, want, if you guys want to do the six hour version of this podcast, I can tell you everything. <laughs> 
about this film and the history. And like, we didn't even go into my thoughts on specifically like the animation on this film, you know, and like, Oh, well, we, no, we it. totally can't. Like, I mean, yeah. that's a huge component of it. So yeah. like, did you, I mean, here's the thing that when we were watching it, um, again, I just sound like I'm just like this, like, amoeba watching this because i have the most simplest takes on it but like i was like oh it's really colorful like that was like literally one thing that i said that that is actually that is actually a super important point about this film because um director nelson shin um had this very very specific and he sort of did this in the cartoon as well but this very he's very into color and so when you're watching those scenes, it's really interesting to see the way he's using color to portray good versus bad. You know, the Decepticons all have a very purple palette. Yes. The yeah. Autobots have that red and orange. And Yes, I be, even said that. Right? Yep. And scenes will be colored that way. Um, like, it's interesting even looking at that very first scene where Megatron attacks the ship and how, like, the Autobots are backed by orange and the Decepticons are backed by black and purples you know and and um the other thing too is that and uh, people have talked about this um i think flint dill talks about this who was the story consultant how nelson was very very specific about um uh shading and shadow and light and he was literally lighting the scenes in the animation and how, you know, how the, the light would play on them. You know, the Decepticons would have a little more shadow, the Autobots less so. You know, he was very specific on how every every single Transformer looked in those scenes, not just lighting a scene, but how each one looked specifically. Especially um, like Megatron, when Megatron and Prime have their encounter, when Prime first says something to him like Megatron is completely enveloped in shadow. I mean, it's yeah. a very like menacing image of him before he turns around and they start their fight. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it, there's just, there's a lot of great art going on in here. Um, I, I, Flint Dill, I think also the story consultant also referred to Nelson Shin as somebody who is the only person he's ever worked with that is literally thinking in uh, films in one twenty fourth of a second. He's thinking about wow. every single frame. They said that was tough when they were doing the television series sure. for a movie. <laughs> Very exacting. Yeah. And he was thinking about all of those. And, and I, that really comes through uh, again, you know, going back to that very first scene where we first see Unicron um, again, going back to Flint Dill saying that he felt like at that moment, he was like, Oh, do we make an art house movie? Because, you know, it, it does. If you've watched some of those animated films from the sixties, if we're talking about like um, the blue planet, the French film, mm-hmm. um, there is some like really abstract things going on, especially when you're looking from inside of Unicron at the planet he's about to devour. There's like jagged edges and organic things kind of going on inside of this metal shell. Um, it, it, it happens, you know, a few times throughout the film where like there's, there's um, very abstract looking imagery, you know? Um, and uh, it probably myself who then became really into like abstract and, and, uh, and animated films, uh, even stuff coming out of Japan, like my love probably started here, you know? Hmm. So, yeah, it's, um, that's really cool. That's really cool. And I, I love that, like you can share that. Like I, like I, I appreciate like you telling us that, like that, that's a really neat thing to get to know about you. We're like happy to have been able to provide this platform. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to say two things. One, and I, I really mean this, in all seriousness, I think you need to find a contact at Hasbro and <laughs> like 
there is something there with you being like such a fan of this world and like I don't know. I'm not saying like you'd go on tour giving like speeches, but like there's something there. There's something there. I'll have to have a think on that for how we can <laughs> make that happen. But then also, I know this is going to sound super random, but if if there is anybody out there who has just continued to follow our podcast, it is not that it was ever surprising to me at all, but like hearing you talk about this film and kind of comparing that to the way that Dan mm-hmm. spoke about E.T., yeah. there's so much similarity there in terms of the depth to which you have thought about these respective films and the way that they have influenced your lives and, and childhoods. And, um, you know, like for anybody, again, who has followed, you know, the the gentleman who we interviewed for the E.T. episode, Dan Strange and mm-hmm. Paul are really good friends. And yeah. there is a role. It makes sense. Huge overlap yeah. there. I yeah. Would, I would say E.T. is his Transformers the movie in a lot of ways. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And equally, just like both of you, it's I could just I really could sit here all day and just kind of listen to your thoughts, because even if like the film itself isn't the thing that like I have a personal passion for it is never not fascinating to listen to somebody who is passionate about a film talk about why they are. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's been really like a real pleasure to oh, listen to you talk about it. The pleasure was mine. The pleasure was mine for sure. I, <laughs> I enjoy talking to you guys about this. So, yeah, I enjoyed this because I, I mean, I liked the movie and I was a fan of the transformers, but nowhere at your level. Mm-hmm. So this has been amazing <laughs> yeah, to get right? to get this level of additional detail and information has been awesome because it had an impact on my life but not not to the same uh you know. I think I think there was a part of me that died inside when Optimus was killed and I'm like, "You know what? Fuck this. <laughs> fuck this toy line. I, I'm uh, done." Probably a lot of kids <laughs> who felt the same way. Like, you know, <laughs> You don't you don't go into a franchise halfway through a franchise and kill off your main character. Like who does that? <laughs> like that is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. So ballsy. Like they were ballsy. The stage for maybe do you think George George R. R. Martin watched Transformers? <laughs> and he's like, you know what? If they, they did got this, them there. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, you know, as somebody who who loves shows like that, like I realize you know, like having that reaction, like, you know, maybe it's lessened a little bit because I had it happen when I was young. When I was yeah. 10, I had you this You guys happen, have no you know. idea. <laughs> just, how, how remarkable is it that we're comparing the Transformers, the movie to Game of Thrones? That's, I find that amazing. <laughs> and it's a totally legitimate comparison. I, yeah. Thank you. I think yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> All right. So Paul, yeah. um, as, as we normally do, you know, again, thank you so much for being on the show and we're really lucky because we, we have so many friends, um, who are creatives and, and just work on really awesome things. And so I was just curious if you wanted to share any of the projects that you've been working on lately. Well, uh, so I work for crown media family networks, which is, uh, like Hallmark channel and associated uh, networks, uh, and streaming platform. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, it's about that time of the year. So we are in the middle actually already it's November, but, um, of our, our Christmas programming, which I feel like this year feels more important than it ever has in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and uh, it's one of the things I've actually, you know, always enjoyed working about at work, at working where I do at Crown Media is just how I get to make people happy. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the thing that we get out of our network. So, um, no, I think that's awesome. And, and you're totally right. And I think that I, not, not to try, like, try to like force together these connections, but I do think that there's a connection there between you having kind of this love for this certain kind of like cultural touchstone from your childhood and Hasbro and no. Oh. And, and now working for a place where like, yeah. like no, no joke, like, First of all, just Hallmark, Hallmark in, in general, but then especially this time of year. I mean, yeah. T-shirts and and sweatshirts are made saying this is my Hallmark holiday movie wearing shirt. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, it is such a huge deal for people. I mean, we've played Hallmark, uh, like Christmas movie bingo <laughs> with friends. Right. And like, it is such a thing. Yeah. And, and so it kind of makes sense that that is like part of, you know, who you are. And, and uh, yeah, we know a ton of people who just like, that is their jam this time of year. So I say it often at work. Um, You know, I am into Transformers and I'm into comics and, and, you know, Star Wars and things like that. And I see very, very little difference between um, what I am, you know, my main fandom and, and the fans of the product that we make at Hallmark Channel. It is its own fandom and it yeah. is beloved. And like, I love how excited people get about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, I, you know, I, I, I can, I can relate to them on that level too, because I know, I know about the things that I've loved and, and I get excited about the stuff that we're creating there. Um, and in the same way, because I know it's going to make them feel the same way that I have about say transformers or, you know, Awesome. Paul. Thank you so much. We love you. And we're just like so stoked that you came on the show. Thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. I had a really good time being here. So awesome conversation. Yeah, that was honestly amazing. And more Transformers information than I had dreamed of. In the very best way. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, totally. So this might be the first time in quite a while that this question might have some relevance. Oh, okay. Would you watch this film again? <laughs> um, well, I, I bought the 30th anniversary edition of it, including some of the uh, documentary behind the scenes mm-hmm. stuff. That was actually really interesting. Yeah. So, like, it's not something that I'm going to watch frequently, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm glad that I got it for this and I'm glad I have it. I'll, I'll probably watch like portions of it again. Mm-hmm. I mean, the opening battle where, uh, where all the shit goes down is, is like always interesting to, to watch. Uh, some of the shots of Unicron at the beginning are cool. So yeah, I'll watch parts of it again, but I'm not, it's not like a Ferris Bueller's thing where, you know, first of all, I'm not just going to turn the TV on and see Transformers, the movie. Probably not. You really have to like make the take the affirmative effort to get to get that on the screen. <laughs> sit down. There are a lot of steps involved. You have, so. to have some agency. You got to do it for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I probably and like look. This is not about being me. I'm not trying to be mean. I did not grow up with this film. Your answer I, is is a hundred percent no, and that's totally okay. <laughs> okay, but. <laughs> But in my defense, I would really like to watch more of that documentary stuff. I found that really interesting. We only watched like a couple minutes of it. There are a lot of other bonus things. Yeah. yeah. I think I think some of those are interesting because what 
I appreciate about this movie now. I mean, obviously, I look at it through like that lens of of nostalgia when mm-hmm. I saw it when it first came out in the theaters. But you know, all these years later, it is still interesting to look at how that movie was made and why it was made mm-hmm. to sell toys. Yeah, and the impact that it had not only on that movie but how it influenced other types of animation tied mm-hmm. to toys moving forward. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you, sir, have a call to action? Well, I think we've talked so much about the influence of of Optimus's death, and so uh, just tell us about one of your childhood traumas. <laughs> oh, my. Or your favorite Transformer. <laughs> either one. We're fine with either. I'm going to encourage the latter. But <laughs> or... If, if uh, I mean, look, you could share whatever you want with us, listeners. Um, and if that's a trauma, so be it. Um, but you know, that that was that was even hard for me to take. Not, I wasn't like weepy over it, but I was just like I said with Paul, like, I was bummed because like that was really the only character I even was familiar with. I mean, I guess I could go for a slightly deeper cut and say, were you more sad about Optimus dying? Or more happy about Starscream getting blown to ash. Wow. Okay. I, I hated that Starscream character when he got disintegrated. Is he I was the fast happy. talker? No, I would have been okay if he had been disintegrated too. Starscream was the uh, the jet that like dumped out Megatron from their uh, space shuttle train. Okay. He's the one who put the crown on, and then Galvatron showed up and blasted him. Okay. Yeah. Real high-pitched voice. <laughs> so he, he does kind of have an annoying voice, but in the context of a blur, mm-hmm. it's pretty much more easy to take. Yeah, I would have been okay with Fast Talker. So, But I think people Dang. that... The people that would be really upset about Optimus would probably know who Starscream is and probably sure. felt okay about him getting killed because they had way more uh, Autobots getting killed, it seemed. Well, let us know. You can get in touch with Childhood us. Childhood trauma, <laughs> favorite Transformer, Optimus Starscream. You can reach out to us through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. It's the same handle for all three. It is at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80s. Mm-hmm. 80s Montage Pod. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Guess what we're going to be doing for our very next episode coming up in two weeks? Uh, I don't know. What is it? Now, this what are we might, doing? This might be kind of a controversial statement. Oh, I okay. We are moving into our holiday season. Okay. Yeah. But we look, we may or may not already have a tree up. We may or may not already have a tree up. It's true. The reason why it might be controversial, not just because it's holiday, but the reason why it might be a controversial statement is because the movie that we are leading with mm-hmm. is Oh, it's Die Hard. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the best holiday movies. Okay, well there, yeah. there you go. That's uh, there's no controversy here. <laughs> maybe, maybe that that is uh, yeah. the trauma that people. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm super excited. I mean, I love the holidays. Absolutely, my favorite time of year. Super excited to talk about this movie, and we're gonna have a really great guest. Uh, she loves this movie as well, and so it's gonna be a really fun conversation. So. Thank you so much for hanging with us and uh, hope you'll come back in two weeks to listen to the next one. Where we will try to do better. Bye. <laughs>